This podcast is brought to you by PC Component Retailer and Boutique Builder, Silver Knight PCs. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 6% off everything on their website. And it is also brought to you by Healthy and Delicious Vite Ramen. And it is also, also brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com that gets you great deals on Windows keys and other products. You can find links in the description and the proper offer codes for all of these sponsors. And we'll talk about them later. But for now, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I'm joined by somebody who I believe when this episode comes out, I, it may literally be exactly one year since the last time you were on. And it's it's been a while, but you tend to come on in the first half of every year at least once to discuss. It's really when like FSR, DLSS, and laptop updates happen um, but I'm really glad to have you on again. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, it's uh, it's me here, Tim from Hardware Unboxed slash Monitors Unboxed. We've got a new channel since last time, so maybe I'll plug that here at the start. But yeah, I always really enjoy coming on and chatting with you and yeah, getting the latest. You know, I know you cover sort of a slightly different field of things than we do in terms of the news and rumors side of things. So yeah, it's always good to come and have a chat. But yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? So I think... Well, yeah, I actually found out or, d- or noticed um, when Steve came on like a month or two ago that he hadn't been on for almost two years, and yet you had been on two times since the last time he was. And I thought that was, I, I don't even know how that happened, but, you know, <laughs> I thought that uh, was pretty funny. I know, he's slacking off. Maybe he's a bit busy, something like that. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I watched his episode a couple couple weeks ago, and I enjoyed it. So hopefully I can live up to something like that. Well, he's probably just busy counting all of those AMD payoffs before he does oh. every video, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, of course, I don't actually think that, but I the, the comments the comments can be uh the comments section can have some uh, they some people have some fascinating opinions for how critical we sometimes are of these companies. I have to say. Yeah, I think the, we're in sort of this cycle now of sort of we're copying the, the AMD unbox sort of thing. I think because of our discussion on VRAM has sort of triggered a lot of that lately. But, you know, it comes and goes in cycles, that sort of criticism. It's, you know, whatever company is the target of the week, you know, we could get called shills and stuff. But, you know, I, I enjoy those sorts of comments. Some of them I find them pretty funny, like just the, how ludicrous some of their ideas are about how things work. But, yeah. All right. I actually, speaking of having you on a year ago, I wanted to start with, you know, kind of jump off from some of the discussions we had, um, which last year, a large, large, large part of the discussion were really centered around two things. One, if in a year or so from now, 4K 144 hertz monitors would be cheap enough for mainstream Lovelace to power them which in hindsight, I think it's very cute that we thought there'd be any 4K-capable Lovelace cards for a mainstream price. Uh, But the other side of that discussion was the state of OLED monitors and the pricing of monitors in general. And when I look around now, I do actually personally feel like the monitor market has gotten to a much, much, much better place in price performance. And 
and offering things you couldn't get a few years ago compared to a year ago where it still to me felt like, I don't know, 1440p was being milked really hard. And if you wanted to jump to high refresh rate, 4K gaming, the pricing was just comical compared to what a lot of TVs offered at the time. Do you think there has, do you personally think there's been a big change in how good monitors are for the price over the past 12 months? Yeah, I definitely agree with you when you say that like, there was sort of this big gap between the capabilities of TVs and the capability of monitors and what you could buy from a TV perspective was often like pretty cheap. Like you get something good for around a thousand dollars US or even less. And then, you know, monitors just weren't, you know, delivering those sorts of features. Whereas I think in the last year we've sort of seen, I guess it's really driven by the emergence of OLED technology, like no monitors available with OLED, suddenly there's all these options available. And that's driven, I think, a lot of this, you know, it pushes everything down. Like, you know, you can no longer charge a certain price for, you know, like a 1440p, 240hz monitor. You know, you can't charge $800 for that when you can buy an OLED for just a couple of hundred dollars more. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So, yeah, I think that's that's impacted a lot of things in terms of pricing. I haven't seen as much of, like, new budget panels mm. You know, things like 4K 144Hz, just your standard LCD has been pretty, I guess, not that different from a year ago. But if you're a high-end shopper, like it's worlds different now. Like if you had a thousand dollars to spend a year ago, the options you had available to you are just not the caliber of what you can get today. And I, I think last time I was on, I think we were sort of talking about predictions of like QD OLED pricing, and I was saying mm-hmm. it was going to be like potentially super expensive. And yeah, boy, was I wrong on that. <laughs> it's it came out. It's very affordable. It makes a lot of sense for people. It's not like two thousand dollars. So no, and yeah. I've been surprised in that too. I mean, I, I remember not not just with you, but with multiple guests and the usual co-host Dan. Like we thought for sure when OLED comes to monitors in a real way, not just like this five thousand dollar professional thing over here. It's probably going to be two grand, especially after we saw. But the first like multi dimming zone gaming monitors were $2,000 and then they dropped in price, I think $300 a month for five months. Like I I thought we assumed they'd try to milk the same with OLED, but I mean, the first ones announced were like 1200 bucks or less. Right. And once you get OLED at that price, I mean, would you agree? Like it's hilarious to charge that much for any other technology if it's a similar refresh rate, right? Yeah. I mean, there's still a place for other technologies like, you know, dimming zone, you know, FALD, LCDs, they, some people will still want those for various reasons, like if you're doing gaming and production work or productivity work or desktop apps, you probably will still want something that isn't going to burn in as easily. Um, so there's still reason to buy those sorts of products. But I think for most gamers, yeah, I mean, you'd probably consider OLED as sort of the first option. Um, and, and again, you know, some of the pricing on those mini LED options is still I'd say is too high, um, you know, $1,500. I, I think it's pretty hard to justify that sort of price. But, you know, it's always good to have these sorts of options. Like I'm not saying you know, it's, it's bad. You know, we still don't have a 32-inch OLED option. We still don't have really, you know, 4K OLED options at a reasonable size. So, again, there's, there are reasons to go with other technologies. But, but yeah, I mean, OLED is sort of taking over, right? Like that's most of the products that you'd be considering today, in my opinion, for gaming would be OLEDs. Well, so that was a question I wanted to get to eventually. Dylan writes in and he says, hey, Tom and Tim, hope you're well. My question for Tim is, who I'm sure gets this question all the time, 
Do you think after all of your time testing OLED and various other panel types that OLED is still the best all-around gaming monitor panel? Or do you think something else will give users a better gaming experience overall without any worry of burning? Thanks and have a great day. And I guess what I'm saying, and I'm adding on to this, like, there's always a reason you might get another technology for something for this and that. I mean, you still have people making these videos that are acting like CRT is the best thing ever. Like I can come up with a scenario where you would get CRT over other options. But in general, above a certain price point, is it almost OLED for nothing or nothing if you're talking about premium gaming monitors? Yeah, I would have thought so. Again, if that's primarily gaming on your monitor, right. like you're buying a monitor and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do 70%, 80% gaming, then, yeah, I would say so. I think the thing that's really impressed me is sort of those new, like, 27-inch 1440p, 240 hertz OLEDs. Like, previously, even with the QD OLED ultra-wides, like, if you're a competitive gamer, you're playing things like Overwatch and Fortnite and CSGO, you're probably not going to be considering that type of OLED monitor for that gaming because mm-hmm. you still want, you know, higher refresh rate, lower latency, those sorts of things. But what we've seen from those 240Hz OLED monitors, they're a really great monitor for multiplayer gaming as well as your sort of HDR single-player gaming. So for a lo- like a wide variety of people, OLED sort of makes sense. Now, there's still those niche use cases where a 360Hz LCD or one of the backlight-strobed 1080p ones from BenQ or one of those brands may make sense if you're like super competitive, that's the only thing that you're doing. But for most people, I would say, yeah, if you had that $1,000 to spend, you're buying in the high end that you would just buy an OLED. They're so versatile. You know, maybe there's an off chance you want to play, you know, maybe you mostly play Overwatch, but you're tempted by, you know, maybe you're going to play the new Star Wars game or something, then an OLED just makes the most sense. So yeah, it's, it's hard for those LCDs to compete at the moment. They probably, as I said, need to be a bit cheaper or offer something different or more backlight zones or something. Um, because, yeah, most of my recommendation at the moment, I think, would be OLED for most people, yeah. You know, you, you touched on something that just occurred to me might be an interesting question for you. You mentioned 360 hertz. The way I like tend to rec- like tend to recommend to most gamers is like, not just what they can get for the money and capability, but when it comes to like refresh rates and CPUs, it's also kind of balancing realistically how many games can even make use of this. Like yeah. for the next, not just this year, but the next 10 years. Like I feel like we've gotten to a place now versus a decade ago, like a decade ago. And even before that, like you had Battlefield too. I think had like a 90 Hertz or something limit. Like you literally couldn't go above that in the game. And then a lot of games got these 200 hertz limits. Like I think Battlefield 3 did. Um, and I feel like a decade ago, tons of games were still capped at 60. But now in 2023, we're at a point where even the consoles have 120 hertz modes half the time. And a lot of game engines are built to run at 120 hertz or higher and run well. And it's hard for me to recommend to a, I don't want to say casual, but somewhat mainstream anyone building a pc is probably somewhat of an enthusiast compared to like you know someone using a switch but you know i think i have to balance like i know some people might want 240 hertz or then 360 hertz but to an average gamer can you realistically how often would you actually even recommend going for even 240 hertz when there's a lot of games to this day that run 120 hertz very well and can't even run above like 300 hertz 
Like, I'm just wondering what you think about how often you would even realistically recommend a 360 hertz to anyone but like the 0.001% of gamers, especially when you consider how much more expensive it gets to go above 200. Like, you'll need, I don't know, a nine, what is it, like a 13900KS and like DDR5 7600 even approach yeah. to run it. It becomes diminishing returns of how much you have to spend to even get past 200 hertz. Yeah, I mean, right now, 360 hertz is not something that is easy to recommend to most people. The monitor itself is, I think, $1,050 for the 1440p version, um, and that's probably where I, you know, 1080p is a bit hard to recommend these days for some gamers, I guess. You know, it very much is something that's designed for really hardcore competitive gamers. Like, as you say, you're not going to be running the majority of games, especially those multiplayer games that are more, you know, graphically intense, like a Battlefield at 300 fps like it's just not realistic mm-hmm. you, you're more talking about the you know valorant type games that can run at 700 800 fps those are the sorts of games where that monitor makes sense at least for now and it certainly seems as well with a lot of single player games that while some some of the time the engines can run at like 120 fps maybe 200 fps if you're lucky that as we move into this you know new generation of of console gaming with you know they're trying to design for PS5 and those sorts of things that you know then those games are not going to be running at 240 hertz or 240 mm-hmm. fps on today's hardware or tomorrow's hardware or the next gen after that's hardware because you know those games are designed for 30 to 60 fps on consoles which means especially if they're CPU limited like we're seeing a lot of games today you know how much faster of a CPU do you need to then run at 300 FPS? Like it's a crazy amount faster than what we have today. That's a thing I remind people too, because they try to max out the PS5 and that has like a 3.4 gigahertz or something, eight core. So if a Zen 2 eight core with somewhat low clocks is doing 60 hertz locked, that means to beat that you need an eight core with double this per core performance to get to 120 if it's actually maxing it out most games don't max out that cpu but some do so it becomes really expensive to get to 240 hertz whereas 120 is easy yeah exactly so you know that's obviously a consideration i think you know when you're buying those high refresh rate monitors there are some benefits for gaming at lower refreshes especially because they're giving you a better panel technology to hit Mm. those sort of higher refresh rates so Typically, especially if you buy an OLED that's high refresh rate, obviously you'll get a lot of advantages there. Even the LCDs tend to be a little bit faster for those lower refresh rates, and it gives you a greater you know range of capabilities if you are playing a different variety of games. But as I said, the pricing today is ludicrously expensive, so they're not something that most people would buy. I think as you know, as potentially if technologies like frame generation get better in terms of their visual quality, there will be benefits using that sort of tech on high refresh rate monitors, you know, because of sample and hold nature and those Mm -hmm. sorts of things, it it should appear clearer, but that's provided that frame generation isn't adding a whole bunch of visual artifacts, which currently is the case in some circumstances. So, you know, maybe in the future we've got this perfect frame gen tech that, you know, doubles, quadruples your frame rate, and then you'll get the benefit of 500 hertz monitors. But that doesn't seem to be something that's going to happen you know, in the next few years, that's still, you know, frame generation today needs more more development. And then on top of that, they have to start thinking about quadrupling frame rates. So yeah, maybe in the future, we'll see the benefit of having those monitors. For desktop apps, it's really nice. Like it's really responsive. Mm-hmm. It's smooth. That's but that's, that's not why you'd spend $1,000. Like it's not worth having a nice smooth mouse is not worth, you know, spending $500 more. So 
yeah, hopefully in the future those sort of products will become more viable. But yeah, for today, I think most gamers would be considering that you know 144 to 240 hertz monitor, especially if you're single player gaming. That's kind of where it's at and, and should be for you know, unless we get a CPU that's double the performance. Yeah, probably the foreseeable future. So I think to put a bow on this conversation, though, like 10 years ago, if I was advising, you know, like a friend of a friend who's into gaming but doesn't really pay that much attention to hardware and where game engines are, I would say definitely go for 60 hertz and go for like 144 hertz if, you, if you've if you used it and you think you'd appreciate it. But for a, a semi-casual, I'm not telling you to get like 200 hertz. At this point, I just would tell everyone, get at least 120 hertz. I mean, every engine supports it. It's like what 60 hertz was a decade ago. It really is supported in every game now. And you don't have to worry about your game capping the frame rate almost ever or anything like that. But I would hesitate to say 240 hertz. Would you typically do the same or would you say, eh, go for 165 or something? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, I think some people, we've actually commented this on Twitter a few times about, you know, 120 hertz or 144 hertz being sort of this moderate refresh rate and people getting, you know, a bit angry that we're not saying that 60 hertz is a moderate refresh rate. I think 60 hertz is a low refresh rate now. If you look across the majority of, and we're talking specifically for gaming monitors, for TVs it's a bit different because they're a different use case. But certainly for monitors, most people are not buying a 60 hertz monitor, especially for gaming, doesn't make sense. So from that standpoint, that's a low refresh rate. You've got sort of 144 hertz in the middle and then your high refresh rates like 240, 360 hertz. So certainly I would say most people, typically you'd you'd want them to buy sort of that moderate mid-range sort of thing as the starting point. Um, So yeah, for me, yeah, it depends on the category. You know, there are some very cheap 1440p, 240 hertz monitors now around $400. So if you had that amount of money to spend, like I would say it's probably worth it. If it's an extra 50 bucks, why not? Yeah, especially if it's like, you know, there's so many monitors on the market, you might be considering that sort of premium 1440p 144 hertz monitor versus the 1440p 240 hertz at the same price. I'd probably say you you just get 240 hertz. It makes sense. It is a, a genuine upgrade. But yeah, for a lot of people, again, especially if you're playing mostly single-player gaming, then it's hard to recommend like going all out, spending heaps of money on 240 hertz. It probably just isn't, it just isn't really justified. But I certainly would not be recommending 60 hertz anymore. Like, there's just no way I'd recommend that. Um, yeah, 144 hertz. Yeah, that that's the minimum. That's what you should be going for. Yeah, it's funny you say 60 hertz is a lower frame rate. Um, look, I, I, some people have gotten mad at me for saying that, but. A decade ago, console games ran at 30 hertz. Now they run at 60. I'm not saying 60's bad. I can't even really say anything's bad. Opinion and your eyes and what you like to see kind of comes into it. But it's a console frame right now, guys. So (laughs) is that not low? What do you want me to say? Like, If you are limited to 60 hertz, you're below the frame rate of a lot of console games. I'm not saying that's bad. I am saying... That is on the lower end of what people are doing now. Even some console games have 40 hertz modes now as the minimum because even they've realized, why are we stopping at 30? Let's at least try to get to 40 locked if you have a variable refresh rate because it just feels so much better. And it does feel better. I've tried 40 hertz. Yeah. I mean, I think with frame rates, it's probably a little different to the refresh rate discussion because refresh rates, I'm sort of talking about what's on the market. You know, right. What could people realistically buy and what, what should they be spending money on? You know, 60 FPS is probably 
more suitable than a 60 hertz monitor, if you know what I mean. Like if you mm-hmm. buy a 120 hertz monitor and use it at 60 FPS in some games, that's that's fine. But at least you have the capability to go higher. Yeah. Whereas if you buy a 60 hertz monitor, you're just dead limited to that, in which case you, you're probably going to suffer playing racing games, shooters, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, 60 FPS is sort of the minimum baseline these days, I think, for games. As you said, I think it's still very acceptable in a lot of titles, but you know, we're certainly beyond the 30 FPS era, I think, it, especially for PC gaming. Like, we're well and truly beyond that. Like, no one's gaming at 30 FPS. It's terrible. It feels bad. And I think console gamers are sort of coming around to that as well. We've oh, seen yeah. a lot of complaints about games only launching with 30 FPS modes on console. You know, imagine those complaints in, like, the Xbox 360 era. Like, there'd, there'd be no <laughs> complaints, right, because people would just accept yeah accepted that but today we're expecting more from those devices which makes sense like we can't be stuck at 30 fps forever it it really isn't a very good experience compared to 60 so well and there's so many diminishing returns and like how many more for lack of a better word teraflops and bandwidth you need to drive higher uh visual quality that at a certain point you might as well (laughs) cap it at at start at 60 when it takes an absurd amount of horsepower to even get higher visual quality you know like yeah Let's solve this issue first, please, before we worry about going from 1800p to 4K and of a console yeah. game or something. Uh, QH Freddy writes in and he asks, what's one thing you think everyone shopping for a monitor should know? Like, is there like one thing you think people overlook or one thing that's a rule of thumb that you say that, again, people just tend to not pay enough attention to? Yeah, I think, again, I was talking earlier about how there's like so many monitors on the market. Like there's just every brand these days seems to have one. There's every price point is just packed with options. Every spec is packed with options. I think the thing for me is like really do your research when it comes to the the, both the specification that you're interested in and the price that you're interested in, in buying because you know, there's monitor manufacturers, you know, they could be selling one one monitor that's a great product. It's $300 US. It's affordable. It's bang for buck. It's great. And then you see pretty much the same specifications being sold for like $500, $600 in some circumstances. And if you just, you know, maybe that's from your favorite brand, like it's you know, a Seuss monitor or a Dell monitor or whatever, and you're just sort of shopping based on brand, you may see that, you know, that expensive premium monitor and think, well, surely that's better than the $300 monitor, right? It's like $200, $300 more. It has to be better. Whereas with monitors, that's often very much not the case. So especially when buying that sort of between $200 and $600 range, I think it's really important to sort of look at all the options. Like let's say you want 1440p, 165 hertz. What's the cheapest I can get you know, with those specifications. What am I going to get from different categories if I, you know, have $500 to spend? Can I get 4K? Can I get a higher refresh rate? Because you might find that there's some brand out there out of the 20, 30 brands offering monitors that's giving you those specifications and giving you a better deal. You often see people like very casual buyers, I guess, who, you know, they've got their brand new fancy monitor. They're, They're happy with it. So, you know, that's great. But, you know, they bought that $500 product when they could have bought something that was $300, saved a bit of money. Um, and unfortunately, that's just the case with the monitor market these days. There's just too many options. It makes it very difficult for people to, especially if you're going to a store, right? And there's like mm-hmm. the big wall of monitors, you know, like how do I decide which one of these to get? You know, they all look very similar. I'll just pay, you know, whatever price. Whereas, you know, 
maybe you can do that with graphics cards because there's like two options, two brands making making GPUs. But with monitors, there's oh, like Oh, no, 30. a third one has entered the chat, Tim. Oh, sorry. Doing great. <laughs> sorry, I just wrecked Intel there a little bit, didn't I? Um, there's three brands making GPUs. Um, but yeah, with monitors, there's 30. So yeah, I guess that's that's what I'd say these days. I think most people these days are aware with, of like the lies with specifications, things like, mm-hmm. you know, one millisecond not being accurate and HDR not being accurate. So these days very much on the sort of, yeah, getting a good deal, getting a good price for what you want. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of what you're saying is what are the features you actually want to pay for and what are ones where you're just convincing yourself to pay more for the thing you, you really don't need? Because I advised a friend on getting a monitor last holiday season I, and i had helped him before i think it was like in 2016 he got a 4k 60 ips monitor for like 350 with FreeSync, and a, that was a pretty good price at the time but you know like seven years later he wants 144 hertz gaming and he was looking at all these different eight hdr specs all these different refresh rates like some of them could go to 170 hertz and he was trying to decide between like he was sure he didn't want to get close to a thousand, but he'd be willing to spend more than like six hundred if he needed to. And there were some monitors that had like four dimming zones or something. And I can I convinced him, you know, this it was an LG one. This LG monitor doesn't. I I don't believe it had dimming zones, but it had like HDR six hundred. It had much more accurate colors. And these ones with dimming zones actually had less accurate colors for like 200 extra dollars. And they were limited to 144 hertz. This one's 170 hertz. And he's like, yeah, but no dimming zones. And I said, compared to OLED, four dimming zones might as well be none. I mean, like, let's be honest. And if you're trading 170 hertz and more accurate colors and better response times for like four or eight dimming zones... And the one with eight dimming zones is more expensive. I, I don't think you're getting enough to pay for It's debatable. These are e- just trade-offs, but one's $200 cheaper. So I would not go for the $800 option unless I sent him a link. You're willing to go to this 1100 dimming zone option that's another $500 or something. Yeah, there's a lot of like incremental spec chasing type stuff where you know a, one brand comes up with a new monitor that's like way more expensive but it's only like slightly faster like we've seen the classic thing is like we got 144 hertz and then a company would come oh we've got 165 now i've got 170 and now i've got 175 and 180 it's like 180 is you know it is better than 144 but it's like it's not worth paying like double the price for it's a negligible sort of upgrade it's not it's not going to be massive for your gaming experience and that's how a lot of these brands are sort of releasing these new products. Like a new one will come out, it's got a cooler design. It's like, well, a design is nice to have, but like is it worth having the inferior panel? Is it worth spending significantly more because it's got more RGB LED lights on the back yeah. or something? Like th- those are features that have been integrated that don't really, at least in my opinion, really change the, the package all that much. It really is things like, dramatically increasing dimming zones, giving you actual HDR, mm-hmm. you know, giving you, you know, significantly better contrast ratio. Like hopefully we get things like IPS black in gaming monitors soon. Things like that actually make a difference. But yeah, like the, the, again, there's just so many options on the market that it's very easy to make those sorts of like 
wrong buying decisions, I guess, where you sort of you, you get a bit of tunnel vision on the sort of one thing that you're after, but then you're sacrificing a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, that's that's very easy to do at the moment. And there's so many products that are launched just fresh new brand new products that are just terribly priced or have the wrong mm-hmm. they're targeting the wrong things it's still happening today unfortunately which again makes it difficult for buyers well so okay uh, to make a specific recommendation oh my god let me try to read this guy's name message Mikalak writes in and says hi tom and tim as someone with an old asus pg 27q a 1440p 144 hertz monitor would you recommend upgrading now or is there no point in doing so yet are the improvements in image quality noticeable enough to warrant an upgrade i own a pc with a 5600x and a 4070 and i play mainly single player games love the podcast by the way cheers from poland and, and i think this question's interesting because i feel like at least from my end for the past few years, it's been easy for me to recommend certain price points. But in the high end, I've kind of said, if you have something good enough, wait, because they are getting cheaper so quickly. But I do feel like this year we're in a place where things have rapidly gotten better in most price points. Um, but do you think he should keep waiting with 144 hertz, 1440p with that CPU? Or do you think he really should go for an upgrade now? I mean, yeah, it depends on the sort of price that you can afford, isn't it? Um, I guess if you've bought something like that ASUS monitor, that was, I believe that was a high-end monitor back when it was launched. So this person's probably spent five or six hundred dollars US equivalent in Poland for that sort of product. And you know, that, that's a very you know, today I would be recommending fourteen forty p one forty four hertz to a lot of people. So it's not like you're sitting here with a unusable 1080p 60 hertz monitor or mm-hmm. even lower resolution monitor and you know, you're going to get this drastic upgrade by upgrading to something like that you know by having that product already you're pretty much you know there's not really something in that three four even five hundred dollar range that would be a significant upgrade i mean maybe you could buy 1440p 240 hertz but depending on the games you play you know he's got a 5600x right yeah so. he says mainly single player games right so yeah, I probably wouldn't make that sort of upgrade. It's you know, if you can afford a thousand dollars US or equivalent in your region, then obviously an OLED upgrade will be significant in pretty much every single way. Like it's faster, it has deeper blacks, it has actual HDR capabilities. You're getting that, especially if you buy the 27 inch ones, you do get a higher refresh rate. So that sort of product offers improvements in pretty much every aspect. Now you probably will downgrade a little bit and burn in and, and those sorts of areas and and text clarity, but you know, that's where I'd be sort of thinking that would be an upgrade path for that sort of owner. But again, if you're not willing to spend a thousand dollars because you'd previously been buying in the five or six hundred dollar range, then probably you should just wait. Just wait until mm-hmm. there's that product that's worth buying, until OLED gets a little bit cheaper, or we see more affordable, good quality mini LED monitors. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess it sort of shows a little bit like the strengths of buying a good quality monitor many years ago. Like if, if you bought, mm-hmm. you, you spent good money and you got a good quality product five years ago, it's still very viable today and it makes these sort of upgrade decisions uh, not as obvious or like I was saying, it's not a 1080p monitor, so it's still very usable today, um, which I guess makes sense for a lot of monitors. Like you'd ideally want to be keeping these for five to seven years. So Right. It takes me a lot to want yeah. to upgrade. I've got a 4K 120 hertz monitor now. I was able to overclock it to 130 hertz and it or 132 hertz, like the limits I think of the display port that it has. And it's running fine. And yeah, I don't have HDR really, but it's a color accurate calibrated monitor. So for my work, I, it would yep. take OLED for me to upgrade because it, it 
really checks these other box. It's not 144 hertz. I'm not going to kill myself because it's 132 hertz, though. I mean, come on, guys. Yeah, exactly. Jessie here loves sticks, but it definitely wouldn't be healthy if I just let her chow down on them all the time as much as she would like to. The same is usually true for reasonably priced instant meals for humans. It's easy to feel stuck looking for something that's quick to cook, tasty, healthy, and cheap all at the same time. Well, unless you consider Vite Ramen, this piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers a ton of options for eating healthy, like their classic packages that make it easy for you to add protein and other ingredients of your choice to make a complete hearty meal, or their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break, whether at the office or at home. Click on the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on a variety of different products, including special bundles just for Moore's Laws Dead fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, and other food products, cooking utensils, and more. And when you order this spring, know that Vite just shut down for three months and re launch their entire operation to improve speed, customer service, and just to improve things in the back end so they can keep up with how popular their product has become. Supporting them helps support me. And even just clicking on the link below makes a big difference, but I really do like their product and I recommend it. So if you're hungry for something that's healthy, cheap, and easy to make, check out Vite Ramen and use offer code BROKENSILICON today. Um, Florida man writes in, what are your thoughts on the future of display technology, such as nano LED, which is expected to come in three to four years? Because you mentioned OLED burn in. I think it's something people worry about too much in general. I've never had burn in on anything. I did watch one of your videos where you found burn in if you, I shouldn't say take out a microscope, but it like, it's like it blacks and grays to see a line or something like it, would you say OLED burn-in is, oh, that's kind of a loaded question. I was going to say a real factor. I guess if it's yes or no, it's a factor. But it does it feel like it's a big deal right now? Do you think it's going to be improved a lot soon? And do you think there's something that's going to replace OLED anytime in the foreseeable future? Or do you just think OLED is going to keep getting better? Yeah, I mean, a burn-in is, you know, it's certainly a concern. But it depends on, like, how you're using your monitor. If you're playing games, watching videos, doing that most of the time, it's not something you should be worrying about at all. Like it's, I know, I'm sure there's buyers out there where they're sort of worrying about it. It's sort of in the back of their mind. Oh, I've bought this monitor that can degrade over time, right? So maybe there's some sort of concern that I've got there. But for most people doing those sorts of use cases, it's a non-issue. It's really for people who are sitting there, you know, editing documents or using a spreadsheet on your monitor for eight hours a day. Like that's probably going to burn in your monitor over time. And it's probably not advised that you do that. But again, for a gaming focused monitor, you're buying it for gaming. It's, I, I wouldn't worry about it. I guess, you know, with OLED technology, maybe it'll improve in the burn-in front. It's hard to say. I think a lot of the stuff that's happened to fix burn-in has been more on the software side of things, like mm-hmm. all these sort of pixel compensation cycles and logo detection and auto-dimming and, and those sorts of things have helped. Uh, I think the real thing that I'd be looking out for are things like warranty, like the best way to guarantee yourself against burn-in is to buy a product that the manufacturer is giving you a three to five-year... I know a lot of them are these days are three-year. I'd like mm-hmm. to see them being more like five-year plus 
warranty against burn-in because that would really give you just the peace of mind that if anything happens, you can just get a replacement. Um, so hopefully we see more products launch like that. I think these sort of future technologies like nano LED, you know, it, it's qu- I find it questionable whether that will actually improve something like burn-in because nano LED you know, is still pretty much a self-emissive technology. It's sort of, you, instead of using OLEDs, it's using like these uh, emissive photosensitive uh, particles or whatever. Again, I'm not super familiar with the technology, but my understanding is is still sort of sort of like a hybrid between the, the quantum dot stuff that we're seeing now and you know, they, they use, what's the best way of putting it? They use electricity and they convert the, they use the quantum dots to convert into light as well. Very fancy technology, but there's still potential concerns there for burning because the different, you know, sub-pixels and pixels may degrade at different rates depending mm-hmm. on their use, which right. is always the issue when, when you've got these individually lit pixels. Even something like micro-LED that's sort of been this, you know, the, the holy grail of technology that always seems five years away, yeah. is that even there potentially you know, each individual LED that's backlighting each pixel, those could still, you know, degrade at different rates. And I guess the theory there was that, you know, those the, the type of... Um, like compound or uh, you know, the type of material they can use to to create those mini LEDs or micro LEDs will last a lot longer than OLED. So theoretically, you get less burning. Maybe that'll be the case with nano LED but, as well. But it's always theoretical. Do you remember? It's always the theoretical. Early, you remember the early OLED thing where they were like OLED panels will use significantly less energy. Yes, if most of the screen is black, is what it turned out yeah, to be. Yeah. IPS actually seems to be more efficient than OLED on most. Most products where you have to choose between which panel type, the laptop that has the OLED screen tends to lose battery life. So it doesn't seem like in specific uses, OLED seems to be theoretically be able to hit a peak, uh, you know, like efficiency that's better. But in most practical devices, uses more energy. You're saying there's probably a lot of things like that with micro LED. I would say so. I mean, uh, it's like with all these sort of future technologies, it's always marketed and talked about with all the positive stuff, right? Like, yeah, oh, we, we'll be able to make it so much more efficient and brighter and it'll last so much longer and stuff. And then you get the technology in hand and it's actually got all these compromises and downsides. You know, even with the launch of something like QD OLED, it was talked about as having all these burn-in advantages and, you know, brightness advantages and all these sorts of things. It's like we got some of that stuff. It is, it is brighter, but... The stuff around burn-in is certainly very questionable. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen any evidence that actually proves that it's better for burn-in than like an LG mm-hmm. W OLED design. And this may be the case with these future technologies. Again, it's so hard to know because you know, all, there's no point developing a technology that you can't market as being better than what we've already got because people are just be like, well, it's just the same as what we've got, so we'll just ignore that. So hopefully they come with these benefits, but... You know, when you look at the design and how they they work, I, I I still have concerns about how those designs would affect things like burning. Now, maybe it'll be better, maybe it'll be fixed, and it'll, it'll probably take five years of usage to figure out either way. Um, but again, you know, we're talking about te- display technologies that move very very slowly. Like again, with nano LED, they say in five five years maybe we'll have that. But how long have they been saying we'll have micro LED now? Like. I swear five years ago it was five years away and it's still, you know, you can buy it on a TV that's 120 inches for $40,000, but there's no, there's no, it doesn't seem to be a a clear path to producing that for monitors yet. So 
Yeah. The the comparison point I make is, and I don't remember the exact year off the top of my head, but I believe it was like 2012 when like LG showed off an OLED TV and said, these will be mainstream in two years. And mm, not really. Now we are finally getting the mainstream in monitors a decade later. And so when they say that with yeah. mini LED, you're, it's probably going to be a decade. Also, it's not going to be competing with the OLED we have now. It will be competing with future OLED that will have all of these new innovations they've done to make yeah. it last longer. And, you know, will always will there always be a burden factor with OLED? Yes. But a lot of TVs and monitors I've had break didn't break because of burn-in. They're, like some other component, whether it's the backlight yeah. or something else, and it broke. It's, it's kind of like the SSD versus hard drive argument of like, well, technically the SSD will write itself to death. And it's like, yes, but that spinning plate's going to break in four years, dude. So I, it's not going to outlast the SSD in almost any practical terms anyways. And I feel like a lot of similar arguments are made against OLED, you know, for the past few years. Yeah, for sure. Like there's, when you've got this thing that is always going to fail at some point in the future, it's about managing it so that you get, you're getting an acceptable amount of life out of it. I think people, you know, if you're getting your monitor burning in after one or two years, that's unacceptable, like especially for the prices you're paying. You want it to last a lot longer than that. But if it's burning out in after like five to seven years, you've had a pretty good run. And yeah, maybe you can get an LCD that's lucky and it'll last for, you know, 12 years or something ridiculous. But backlights fail, power supplies fail, many components can fail in any sort of product. And yeah, with OLED, hopefully there, there becomes this sweet spot in the future where the burn in is taking longer than what most people mm-hmm. would consider is acceptable. And I think today with TVs, that's definitely the case. Like they burn in, the burn in is really not a concern for most users because, you know, I've had my OLED TV for well, like four, four or five years now and there's been no appreciable burn in. That's sort of what we should be targeting. Um, and certainly, you know, it appears that they're, they're still working on this side of things. They're not just giving up being like, this is as good as it can get. They're still... Mm-hmm. They're still innovating on those things and figuring out new ways to to make it better, make us last longer. Um, so ho- hopefully, yeah, with the sort of future tech, you know, th- there certainly is a pipeline of, of features for OLED that you know you can see the the future technologies that they're going to be integrating into OLED. Seems to be a lot of very interesting things happening there in terms of, especially on QD OLED side of things, sort of resolving some of the issues that we've seen there. So yeah, OLED's going to keep innovating. Uh, I wouldn't be just sitting here waiting. I'm going to wait for nano LED or something like it's just. And if you wait for a nano LED, I mean, you know, if the OLED thing you get now breaks in seven years or, or you're like, well, if it breaks in seven, it needs to last 12. I mean, 12 years. I mean, your friends may have their like hologram AI powered jetpack monitors by then, you know, insert buzzword that we'll have at the time. Like, who knows what the comp like will you really be happier using it 12 years from now when these other alternatives will be there that we might not even know what they are right now yeah um all right so i kind of want to switch gears to another subject here you recently did some testing of fsr versus dlss and i wanted to just get your opinion on here like how would you summarize the state of fsr versus dlss and then after that what does FSR need to accomplish in order to really make a difference now versus what happened with FSR2 versus DLSS2? Because I think it's pretty clear AMD was hoping FSR2 would take more ground from DLSS2 than it ended up doing. So like, what's the landscape now? 
And what would AMD have to do, not just to tread water, but change the landscape to be more in their favor? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you when I say when you said that you know they've probably not been as successful with FSRs they would have hoped for. When we looked at it across twenty six games, you know, th- they're certainly not at the level of DLSS, and, and it's pretty. You don't even need to test twenty six games. It's pretty evident after maybe. 10-ish games of testing, that the same sort of issues with FSR crop up in, across most games, even mm. with the, the sort of newer versions of the technology. Um, you know, DLSS, especially if, you know, we've just talked about 1440p monitors a lot, you know, DLSS is significantly better than FSR at 1440p, and I think that's a real, really big issue for AMD because most people are playing at 1440p or that sort of resolution, not 4K, where FSR is certainly... No, I wouldn't say it's better than DLSS or matches DLSS, but it's closer there. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, as I said in those videos, DLSS, in my opinion, is clearly superior. And especially for 1440p gamers, I think it's something that you probably should be considering when buying a GPU, Mm. you know, to the point where, you know, maybe it's not, you know, I would only consider buying GeForce, but, you know, at a similar price point for a similar performance, I think that sort of feature could swing you one way or the other, certainly, which I, I'm guessing is not what AMD was hoping for when they launched the technology. Um, and, you know, something I mentioned recently in a Q&A is I think that their strategy with FSRs kind of failed. Mm. You know, it, it seems that, you know, their design goal for the technology was let's make it an open technology that works across all GPUs. And you think about, okay, well, what's that? What's the point of doing that? Like, it's not going to sell, like, it's not an exclusive feature, so people aren't going to buy a Radeon GPU to use FSR because a GeForce owner could use it as well. It seems clear they were trying to do that so that game developers would have this incentive to only integrate FSR. We'll get rid of DLSS, there'll be no need to use it, and that that will therefore, I guess, nullify DLSS in Mm -hmm. the market. Like, it'll be this counter, we'll get rid of it, remove it, and then, you know, upscaling won't be a talking point anymore because all games will have FSR. But it kind of didn't work. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. if you look at games today, most games include either FSR and DLSS or just DLSS. There's a few games that include just FSR, but it's pretty Mm -hmm. rare. You know, even games today are including XESS, right? So XESS, there's really no point integrating that, in my opinion, but game developers are doing that. So it's showing that there's this, you know, game developers are sort of on... They're on the same page. Like they want to include these technologies, so they're including all the tech. And that completely nullifies this FSR open advantage if game developers are just including everything, right? So and and again, like if FSR was better than DLSS, maybe they would have this incentive to only include the one open mm-hmm. technology that works across all GPUs. But because it's not, there's always this talking point of if you've only included FSR, why haven't you included DLSS? It's better for GeForce owners. And I certainly would agree with that. So, yeah, the open strategy I don't think has has worked. I think, you know, AMD needs to focus on making the technology as good as they can for Radeon GPU buyers because realistically, FSR is being used by Radeon GPU owners. DLSS is being used by GeForce owners. They're not really using FSR, so they have to make it as good as possible on their cards. And, you know, maybe there's... A better way of going about it than the open approach. Maybe that's hamstrung them a bit. Maybe there are like AI accelerated pathways that they could take that's exclusive to radio. And I think that's sort of the path that that you need to go down. But like, would you agree that the, the strategy that they took hasn't really worked? 
I think AMD underestimated how much of a bet NVIDIA was making on DLSS. I think AMD thought, especially, and they were probably basing this on the first couple of years of DLSS, you know, NVIDIA basically botched the first release of DLSS. It was a meme on Reddit. And then they made it good with 2.0. And then I think AMD was saw, oh, every year they seem to have like 10 DLSS games, 20 DLSS games. What's the big deal? But we're seeing a situation where NVIDIA is willing to, whether it's because developers like it or NVIDIA is willing to pay for them to use it, probably a bit of both. They're getting a hundred, almost every game. There's not a game I play that doesn't have DLSS support. And it, I, it's just mine experience. It's the games I play, but I play Deep Rock Galactic, Battlefield, Call of Duty. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I played. Like every game I play, Bannerlord. All of them support DLSS, like literally all of them do, I think, besides maybe Age of Empires or something, you know, so like they all support it. And I think AMD underestimated that NVIDIA really was going to make sure every game gets DLSS support. And if it and it's almost like this, like momentum thing where if every game basically has DLSS support then gamers are going to start noticing when it doesn't, and the developers are going to have to start feeling like they have to have it, especially because, you know, whatever it is, like 70 to 80% of the PC gaming market is owned by NVIDIA market share right now. And most of that is Turing or later, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point about the, the GPUs being Turing or later having RTX capabilities, is that you know, back when FSR launched, more people were using Pascal-era GPUs, um, so that sort of open approach kind of made slightly more sense because at least you're then targeting, you know, 1070 owners, 1080 Ti owners, and the, the GTX 16 series owners as well with that open approach. But but these days with most people having, at least GeForce owners, having now upgraded to some form of RTX GPU mm -hmm. that runs DLSS, you know, again, the open approach is sort of just narrowed down to basically only Radeon GPU owners are going to be using this technology. And yeah, it's nice that it can run on things like a, a Steam Deck and APUs and those sorts of things, but those are still you know, the AMD products. So, And I think it's a better alternative than like turning the resolution down to 360 hertz on a Steam Deck. FSR looks yes. better than that. Of course, but it yeah. it does not look as good as DLSS. Yeah, it, it certainly has its place. Like, it, I'm not saying get rid of FSR was kind of a waste of time, but you know, I think for them to be more competitive, they need to start designing it for their hardware. Instead of designing it for all hardware, they're sort of looking at what's the absolute best experience we can deliver for our buyers because I, I really do think that that open approach has sort of, yeah, hamstrung them in, in some ways into delivering the best quality that they can. Um, you know, I know that they're sort of saying we can make it as good without AI technology. Well, they haven't proven that. And certainly the, the techniques we've seen, even XCSS with its you know, the, the version for Intel Arc GPUs, that also looks better than FSR, and that uses this this AI approach. So, you know, I, I think with these sort of future technologies like FSR 3, they've got to, again, they've got to optimize it for their buyers, for their GPU owners, and make it a feature that is competitive from a visual and performance standpoint with DLSS so that buyers aren't going, oh, you know, I'm sort of maybe missing out a little bit by buying the Radeon GPU because FSR is not as good, they need to just, who cares about it running on GeForce? Just make it good on Radeon products. Um, and as well with FSR, you know, the FSR 3 specifically, they cannot wait ages to get this technology out the door. They took way too long to get FSR 2 out the door. And that led to what you were talking about, about, you know, these products and games having 
plenty of DLSS support by the time FSR is introduced into the market. There's already all that momentum. Gamers want DLSS. Then FSR is introduced way too late and they're playing catch up. Well, FSR 3, you know, DLSS 3 is in, well, like maybe 20 to 30 games at the moment. Still a reasonable amount, but not the hundreds of games that, mm-hmm. that DLSS is. So, you know, AMD has this opportunity to start their FSR 3 ecosystem off from, you know, a more competitive starting point, but they can't just keep waiting forever. Like, DLSS 3 has been out for six months. They basically need to right. launch it right away. I almost have no game. I don't know if I have a game, actually, that supports DLSS 3 yet, but what I do know is that by the time FSR 3 comes out, there will probably be a lot more games with DLSS 3 support. And I guess, yeah, so that gets me to the question. I guess you said, well, it seems like, number one, you think AMD can't waffle around. Like, they need to get this out on time. Um, and that's number one for making sure FSR 3 succeeds in a way 2 doesn't. But I was thinking to myself, maybe there's a benefit for them starting with no AI, because without using AI, they almost made their solution as good as nvidia's which means they probably optimized for all of the non-ai ways of making it work well that they can before they try to add that so they're they're starting from a good baseline though at least whereas with dlss1 it was a horrible baseline and xc super sampling it's a decent baseline if you use arc is a very bad baseline without the ai accelerated from what i've seen um yeah but i think like what AMD could do to make this succeed more. And unfortunately, I hear two things right now. Number one, I hear they are working on a hardware accelerated version of FSR that can only leverage RDNA 3 and later. I do hear that's a version of it they're working on, but it sounds like the initial FSR 3 implementation may still not use whatever that is. So I don't think they're going to have that hardware leverage thing out of the gate. I hope I'm wrong because uh, I think it would bring more competition to the market. But I feel like if there was something they could do to really shake things up, you know, their their biggest deficit right now against NVIDIA is that NVIDIA's performance and especially ultra performance modes look light years better than AMD's mm-hmm. performance and ultra performance modes of FSR. Their qualities are pretty close, actually. So I, I don't know. I think like a real way to counter NVIDIA's frame generation tech would probably be to say our ultra performance mode looks so good you'll probably rather use this than frame generation anyways because this is an argument i keep bringing up i've brought it up with several developers who have been on the podcast i just don't understand why nvidia is getting away in a lot of reviews with comparing dlss 3 with frame generation to dlss 2 quality mode when there's artifacts in three. So shouldn't you be comparing it to DLSS 3's frame rate with ultra performance mode? Because doesn't that probably look as good as the DLSS 3 with artifacts in some scenarios? I I I, I just it's an argument I'm I'm keep thinking of of like if we can get to 300 hertz with an ultra performance mode anyways, for latency reasons, wouldn't that feel better than using frame generation to get there? I I, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, from a latency standpoint, it would definitely be superior. From image quality, I mean, certainly with FSR 2, you're not getting the ultra performance mode is not going to look as good as DLSS 3. It's going to look absolutely terrible. So, I mean, theoretically, it would be possible. Like, I'm not discounting that as, as a method and way forward. I think, though, if they, if AMD could have done that, as in make the ultra performance or performance modes look significantly better, 
than they would have by now. Like FSR2 has mm-hmm. been on the market for long enough that surely they could have improved those aspects of FSR, whereas really they, it hasn't improved, at least as far as I've seen. You know, they've improved a few specific aspects of the visual artifacts. There's certainly areas where FSR now looks a little better, but we're talking individual artifacts. Still the upscaling from low resolutions mm-hmm. is, is not good enough. So, yeah, that's definitely one area where they can be competitive, but certainly, like, the easiest way to be competitive is just to make the feature better. Like, mm. they can't just sit here and say, oh, you know, we, we're trying to make it be sort of nearly as good some of the time and in these specific scenarios it's as good. It's like that's not selling. Being 80% as good doesn't sell you products. You know, you have to be, you have to be matching them or beating them. And especially if it's like a feature that, again, I think only Radeon GP owners are probably going to be using FSR3, you know, and again, there's no benefit giving it to RTX 30 owners. There's no like that's not selling products either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's they're in sort of this difficult position, and you know, it's it's unlikely that a technology like FSR3 will look better than DLSS3 if the baseline is FSR2. Like, if that's the way that they're doing the the temporal upscaling, then we already know that that's not as good as DLSS. So, if that's a key cornerstone of FSR3, it's again, it's unlikely that's going to look as good as DLSS3. Um, maybe they you're can- basically saying they've maxed out the non-AI way to do it. Like this is as good as it's probably going to get by now, yeah. and it's impressive, but it doesn't look as good unless you use hardware acceleration. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure whether they could make it better, yeah. but they certainly, across the last year of us having the technology, they have not really been able to improve it to the level that DLSS is at. The gap between the two technologies is is pretty pretty much the same as it was. Mm. DLSS has improved as well. Like, don't get me wrong, but you know, FSR two point two is probably still below like a DLSS two point two ish sort of level um, back in those sort of earlier days. So, it, it seems that they've they've maxed it out the capabilities. I, I don't want to say that they have because maybe there's they've got something up their sleeve. But you know, DLSS three was built off. The you know DLSS two is a key component of how DLSS three works. So I imagine that with FSR three, that FSR two is a key part of how that works as well. Like you you lower the resolution, you upscale it, and then you apply frame generation on top of that. So you know even in the best case scenario where AMD's frame generation is as good as Nvidia's in that each generated frame has mm-hmm. the same sort of artifacts, it looks sort of the same, has the same latency concerns, they'd still be at this this disadvantage if the you know temporal upscaling component isn't as good as DLSS. And that, that that's sort of where the concerns would lie there. You know, there are still very obvious artifacts in FSI in some games. You know, yeah. If I look back to my 26-game comparison, there's some games where it's, FSR is just horrible in terms of flickering and those artifacts and you wouldn't want to take a flickering image and chuck it into frame generation like that's oh, going to look that's going to look real bad and i know what you mean because i messed around tuning my girlfriend's pc and harry potter for way too long i guess i was just having fun one night messing with the settings because I, I just never really do that anymore and i did notice in like one common area in the background there is this thing specifically with FSR, where I feel like close up with FSR too, it looks as good, sometimes better than DLSS, but in the distance, so like shimmering artifacting thing, which I think you pointed out too, I was like, oh yeah, that looks really bad right there and I just cannot make it go away. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, those artifacts and things are things that they really need to work on as a baseline for FSR3. Now, hopefully FSR3 includes some big improvement to the, the FSR2 technology that goes into it. But again, I, I agree with what you're saying. It doesn't sound like that's 
what is in the pipeline for them. Maybe that's that's further down the path. And I, I also do agree with your point that you made about they're starting from a good baseline with the non-AI technology because they, they've, you know, there are some areas where it's very competitive with AI upscaling without using AI. You know, the, things like the sharpening filter in FSR is way better than the DLSS sharpening mm-hmm. filter. They've clearly put a lot of time and effort into that and that's a key component of these sort of upscalers is, making it not look blurry. And, you know, very rarely do you see an FSR implementation that's blurry. There's there's other issues, but that's not an issue. And the, so when you're putting the, the time and effort into those things, you're putting the time and effort into, you know, many games have adjustable sharpening settings and, mm-hmm. you know, the performance is really good and, and those sorts of things. They're starting from this good baseline. They just need to enhance it with, you know, forget about running it on Pascal-era GPUs that people are upgrading away from and focusing it on how can we improve the quality at the same performance using, you know, these brand new architectures have all these new extensions and features and things that really should be leveraged for these cutting edge technologies. And NVIDIA is really good at doing that. And I think AMD needs to to do that as well to to bring up to the same sort of quality level. But again, with FSR3, they sort of have this, they can start again, right? Like they can, there's fewer games that have DLSS3. They have an opportunity to get in at a, more of a ground level, not be years behind, improve the quality, have it look similar to, to DLSS. They've, they've got another chance to do that. They just can't you know, wait around and take ages to launch it and, and botch it in terms of quality. So we'll see what they come mm-hmm. out with with the, with the technology. I'm really keen to check it out to see what they can do. But again, this is sort of Radeon, Radeon's uh, software features that we're talking about. So I'm not holding my breath for it to be better, unfortunately. Yeah, what I'm hoping is that the reason it's taking a while to come out is they realize this is a pointless thing to launch unless it has something besides bragging about it being open source. I'm thinking they've realized that and they're saying there's just no point in us launching this unless we have some minor ace up our sleeve on why this is better than DLSS because ultimately, frankly, FSR2 works pretty well and it's not going to be a selling point unless there's a big reason it's better. You know, besides just also we have frame generation, which frame generation is a pretty controversial subject anyways. I don't think anyone's going to go, oh, I was waiting for AMD to have frame generation and that's why they yeah. buy it, you know. Yeah, they need it from a competitive standpoint because they can't be seen to have like, the worst feature set. You know, they need to tick all the boxes, which we've seen from both brands. You know, AMD comes out with, you know, Radeon Super Resolution and then NVIDIA is like, oh, let, well, we'll include that in our driver now sort of thing. So all these companies are always about ticking boxes. But the thing that always has been killer with Radeon is that NVIDIA produces these cool new features that people want to use, right? Like ray tracing, while it wasn't, in my opinion, very good to begin with, it was something that people sort of, perked up. They're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I want to try that out. DLSS, again, I want to try that out. It, it kind of sucked to begin with, but they've made it good. They made it worth buying. You know, they've released features first, things like, you know, RTX voice. It's a small feature and AMD now has a competitor to it, but they sort of have that interesting feature that makes you go, oh, that's strengthening the GeForce brand. Like when was the last time we saw an AMD Radeon product have this must-have killer feature that really helps gamers, that people want to play, and that's exclusive to their hardware that you know means you must buy Radeon. Like I can't, I can't really think well, of the last the time funny that thing was is, something. Is they're calling the frame generation feature in FSR three, I think, fluid motion. That's actually coming from a fluid motion tuck they had for videos since 
the 290X, I think. And so they had this algorithm and way of doing it for a decade, did nothing with it, and then yeah, NVIDIA yeah. launches something, and now AMD is going to look like they're playing second fiddle, which they are. I mean, it, they, you know, and, and they the ground they had the groundwork to have this feature before NVIDIA for years. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I remember back in the days when, you know, one of the features that could have been big for them was, you know, something like Mantle is probably the last time that we saw this, you know, big AMD is first to a a key feature for the future of gaming technology. Mantle became Vulkan and lower level APIs that we now use for a wide variety of games today. But at the time, they didn't really, they weren't really able to sell it as a feature that would actually benefit most PC gamers. Mm -hmm. There were, there was a couple of times where if you were like super CPU limited on low end hardware that Mantle provided, you know, a small performance benefit uh, used over DX 11, but they didn't really sell it as kind of like, this is the future of gaming. All games are going to use this. AMD is the place to go for this technology. You're going to get better performance and there's going to be new features integrated. You know, that, they weren't really able to do that. And nowadays it's just a common feature. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd really like to see, you know, it's hard for me to say what feature should they integrate because I don't know, but it's like for the last however many generations, they haven't had that killer feature. They haven't had the feature that the must have Radeon exclusive thing that sells GPUs. NVIDIA's had plenty of those features. They've had probably half a dozen of those sorts of features. Mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for AMD not to play catch up anymore and not just, oh, DLSS is out. Now we have to make FSR2. DLSS3 is out. Now we have to make FSR3. What's the thing that they're going to be first to? That's what, that's why I'm interested in. And maybe it is something like VRAM. You know, VRAM is a big discussion now. It's sort of an easy win to have lots of VRAM, but they have to actually go down that path and market it and sell it to gamers and prove that this is a very important thing that people need. And, you know, the low-end battle is, you know, the mainstream battle is probably just about to get started and they have an opportunity there, but, you know, by the sounds of rumors, that's probably not going to happen. So that's another we'll see. thing. Yeah. Ever feel like a dog chasing its tail as you scour dozens of eBay postings and CD websites looking for a safe way to get reasonably priced Microsoft software? Well, you don't have to do that. Just go to cdkeyoffer.com. This piece of content is sponsored by cdkeyoffer.com that offers both Microsoft operating systems, office products, select games, and even some gaming hardware peripherals for reasonable prices. And, you know, they've been a sponsor of Moore's Law's Dead and the entire team here for years for a reason. They've been good to me. They've been good to Dan. They've been good to dozens of me and Dan's family members and friends for years now. And they've also been good to the Moore's Law is Dead community. So whether you're looking for Steam, EA, Uplay, or PlayStation keys, or of course, Microsoft products or gaming peripherals, support Moore's Law is Dead by using the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Microsoft products and DieShrink for 3% off everything else on the website. Support Moore's Law is Dead by supporting one of our best long-term sponsors, cdkeyoffer.com today. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to skip most of this next reader mail, but uh, Alex Slaughter wrote in and brought up RSR and some of the other technologies uh, that he enjoys on his laptop. And I kind of want to piggyback on him bringing that up and mention that I messed with Radeon Chill again a lot recently on a system I was building for somebody. And I've got to say that, like, I, I do think, though, there are some features to AMD's software stack, like Wattman being built in, just the better driver menu in general, 
um, Radeon Chill, which actually works <laughs> incredibly well and is very, very useful on some systems. And that I- I've realized that, like, I've been using almost exclusively NVIDIA laptops for the past decade. And half of that's because there was no choice, really. <laughs> but, you know, I, I realized that moving forward, I really am going to hunt hard for my next laptop to probably be an AMD laptop, maybe AMD APU laptop, because things like Radeon Chill and like their better software package that you can fully utilize in an AMD system that isn't hamstrung by having to send its output through an Intel CPU or something. It's really, really useful. I just, I don't know if you agree with this though. There are a lot of software features Radeon has that people don't bring up like Radeon Chill and just Wattman and their their better menus and like all these kind of minor features that NVIDIA actually does not have that to me makes the software conversation it's a little closer than i think some people realize but i I think that's just amd's fault for never talking about them yeah i agree i mean there's certainly lots of useful features in in radeon software and their menu system is just worlds better than the split between the nvidia control panel and geforce experience almost to the point where you know things like NVIDIA often has a competing feature. It's just hidden away in some like deep yeah. menu that you need to go and find. Like you know, the image scaling thing is, you know, in the AMD control panel, super obvious. It's got this fancy name, Radeon Super Resolution. You turn it on, blah, blah, it's really easy. In NVIDIA, it's like hidden away is like this kind of tiny little feature that no one really wants to talk about. So, yeah, they sort of have had those advantages at times with, the, with their features. And, you know, things like Radio and Chill, yeah, they work well. What, what man works well. The design of the driver is, in my opinion, a lot better. Um, but, it, yeah, I think it's sort of that twofold issue of, for a start, they don't really talk. Well, they do talk about these features, but they don't, they're yet to convince people through their marketing that it's like a must-have feature as the first sort of thing. And then also some of those features probably aren't, a must-have thing like DLSS has been so successful because it provides an mm-hmm. obvious performance benefit. It's a major checkbox, right? Yeah, and things like Radeon Chill—they're useful for people in some circumstances, but they're—they're they're not like a blanket. This improves basically all gaming scenarios, like a DLSS does. Um, so maybe they can do that with some sort of feature in the in the future. I mean, some, maybe something they could do is you know we've seen a lot of stuttering issues with games these days. Traversal stutter in engines is a big issue. Maybe there's some sort of software feature they can come up with for their GPUs that makes that a non-issue. I think that mm. would really Im- improve gaming for a lot of people. You know, you play on the Radeon GPU. This is the stutter-free experience or something. Now I'm not saying that's maybe that's actually not technically possible, which is you know, probably the case, but you know, it's a feature like that that I think would really take them forward. Whereas things like Radeon Chill, it's like if you're in this specific use case where you want better efficiency or to run at a certain temperature or whatever, or you've got a laptop, then it makes sense. Um, it's also a good way to globally cap the frame rate, I've found. Like, yeah, and it yeah. always works, and it does it in a way where it still can let you get a few extra frames when you move quickly without affecting latency much. It's it's a good frame rate cap that works, and it's such a silly thing to bring up, but sometimes frame rate caps can be annoying to try to implement quickly, <laughs> like, which blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, AMD has better frame, well, they're, they're, at least based on my testing, especially for display testing, their frame rate caps are more stable than NVIDIA's frame mm-hmm. rate caps. I don't really know why. I'm sure there's some GPU expert that would be able to explain that for me. Um, but they, they seem to be a bit better able to stick to the exact frame rate that, you, that you're targeting and those sorts of things, which maybe is from the development they put into the drivers. And as well, you know, in, 
NVIDIA drivers at times have had issues with, you know, basic functionality like connecting displays and having them set to the right resolution and refresh rate and, and things like that. Just like the little small quality of life things, you know, AMD, I think, has put a lot of work into that side of things, especially after RDNA 2 where people are having a lot of issues with, you know, black screens and things like that. The, the display... The display connection side of things is very robust in AMD drivers these days, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But again, it's it's something that's hard to market. Like you don't want to sit here saying, "Hey, we're AMD. We've got the best display connections in our GPUs." Like it doesn't really it sell doesn't GPUs. roll off the tongue it's, as well. It, it, well, you know, and it's just so frustrating because I feel like if AMD didn't have these brain dead fumbles every now and then. And I have tons of systems I'm using back and forth that are NVIDIA or AMD. I find AMD's stability is as good as NVIDIA's and sometimes better with more little quality of life things. Like I plug it in, it's using the right resolution. I click this, the menu opens quicker. It's actually nicer and slicker, but then they'll just have one month where there's no RDNA 2 driver updates. They'll just have a month where RDNA 1 has black screens. I remember that a few years ago. And it, it's like if you remove these insanely bad months, I feel like AMD's drivers are actually more stable, but then they just keep getting headlines when there's one bad week and they can't let that happen. Yeah, that's that's certainly problematic for them. Maybe it's a resource thing at the company where you know they're sort of juggling around things. But you know, it, it seems as well there's been times where it's felt like AMD doesn't even really know the strengths of their own products. Like, for example, yeah. we'd, we'd made a lot of content recently about VRAM capacity in games and showing examples where 8-gigabyte GPUs are limited in games at, at certain resolution and quality settings. And it felt like only after we'd made those videos that the Radeon marketing division was noticed that actually that was the strength of their product. And it's like, you know, we start copying criticism for that almost because it looks like we've made a video that then is specifically designed for AMD's marketing team because then they've jumped on it and have shared our video and stuff when that's not at all the case. We made the video just because it was interesting and for some reason AMD didn't really know it was the strength of their own product before we'd made the video. Like at the launch of major AMD-sponsored titles like The Last of Us and Jedi Survivor and those sort of games, Jedi Survivor is not really a VRAM issue title, but you know, Last of Us, for example, or Hogwarts Legacy, you know, they should be jumping around saying, you know, we've got a, a 16 gigabyte, we've been selling you a 16 gigabyte GPU in the same price category as NVIDIA's 8 gig GPU, and that allows you to run it with maximum textures or ray tracing and maximum textures or whatever the case. And they just did, we heard nothing from them about that. Like NVIDIA tells you every single game that has DLSS, there's an update telling you this game's got DLSS, it's got DLSS 3, it's got all of our features. And yet AMD was having these sort of wins in performance in the background and they weren't really telling people about it. I think they just need to take some of those sort of easy wins. Like maybe it is promoting the fact that their driver utility is way better than NVIDIA's driver utility that's faster and easier to use. Maybe just taking some of those easy things is going to improve, improve the situation for them because... Yeah, you can't just be sitting around with a big advantage and waiting for a hardware unbox to make a video to start talking about it. You know? that, that's something, you know, like a lot of my contacts in the industry that I use to try to get ahead of, you know, does this opinion make sense? Is this likely to play out this way? What are you hearing? A lot of the people are just kind of people connected to AMD who know a lot of people there who maybe advise them. They're not always people literally at AMD. 
And everyone who isn't literally at AMD, although sometimes it is people that work at AMD, they say, why doesn't our marketing department get what we're selling or like know when to do that? So what you're, you're saying here is it is a common behind the scenes sentiment of like when I'm trying, when I'm working on a video right now for this 7,608 gigabyte of like, does AMD actually ever understand what their product is best at when they try to sell it? Because I don't, a perfect example that's from recent memory, I had always you know, I, I was like, you know, why does the 7900 XT cost $900 when the XTX is 1000 The early, I thought the Occam's razor conclusion was, well, you know, it's, they actually don't have a lot of dies. This is a 300 millimeter square die. They actually don't need to cut a lot of them down to that. So maybe this is them going, hey, we're actually not going to make a lot of these, just like the RX 6800. We d- this is the price because we don't think there's going to be a lot of them out there. And then I learned that they had made like four times as many 7900 XTs as the 7900 XTX. And I was told that they actually thought people would love that price. And then when Steve, I'm sure you heard that came on, he said that an AMD rep he talked to was blown away that $900 was too much. And I just go, how could you have possibly come to the conclusion that something 20% weaker than this other product should cost 10% less? Like, how could you possibly have concluded people would like that? But they they did. They thought that was the killer price. It's it's just hilarious. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's I, I, maybe they're just not. Again, like it's so obvious for me to say, and say like people people who buy GPUs on the you know the AIB card market, the DIY market, are pretty clued into things like price to performance ratio. Like it's not crazy to say that most people are aware of the value proposition of cards. What frame rate they deliver on average, how that compares to other products. People in, our, in this industry are very clued into these sorts of things. Like most buyers do some form of research. Maybe they don't watch you know, as in-depth videos as, as Gamers Nexus or Hardware Unboxed, but the audience of a Linus Tech Tips type, type channel that does still include that sort of information is massive. People are very mm-hmm. aware if a product is delivering worse performance than the price should be, right? So it just blows my mind that they think that they, that people are, uh, I guess, stupid enough to not realize these sorts of things. But again, maybe they're, they're using different internal metrics for, for setting the price. Like maybe they're going, oh, you know, people are only buying the product on the name. So like 7,900 XT for $900, that sounds like a good price for that name. That's the only thing I can think of because, again, if you think about it, like the 6,900 XT was $1,000. So maybe they're going, oh, well, People will go 6,900 XT, 1,000, 7,900 XT for 900. That equals good deal. That must be what they're thinking because there's no other explanation for why they would have done that. You know, it's funny. I had James Pryor on, actually, at this point, it was probably a little under a year ago, right before RDNA 3 was going to come out. And we kind of knew what they were making. And James used to be in charge of segmentation at AMD or one of the people in charge. And he said, I don't work there anymore. And I just like pressed him. I'm like, if you were in the boardroom, what would you be telling them to price these products at? And he said, I put it at $1,000 for the top one and say, we don't need to go over that. We have good margins no matter what. And then I'd make the other one $800. It's more than before, but it's a price people would still be surprised by. And it's just hilarious that he almost called what AMD would do, but AMD decided to go with $900. Like, and it's true. If it was, you know, 25% or more cheaper for 20% less performance. Well, NVIDIA is trying to get you to get a $1,200 16 gigabyte card. It may have looked good, but instead it's just, 
I, I honestly too like 900 might as well be a thousand like what are we even talking about here yeah it's, when you're talking about high-end buyers it's not that much for those sorts of people buying in that category. It was eight hundred dollars changes the conversation a little bit? Makes you think a little bit more about the price. So, yeah, it seems like they're you know they just keep making those sorts of like little like they do plenty of good stuff and they make a little bit of a blunder and then that's just the and way. then Nvidia knows when to talk about the blunder and when to talk about their strengths. But so we've been kind of dancing around talking about this. I actually think now would be a good time to bring up this subject. Um, King Harkinian writes in and asks, hello, since hardware in box was the first one to raise VRAM its efficiency to such a huge story, how do you feel about it becoming the talk of the gaming tech world seemingly over the past month? And how do you feel about these new upcoming 8GB graphics cards? Which I, I would jump in and say, I don't know. I think hardware in box, me and a lot of people have been raising the issue of 8GB since Ampere came out, at least. I remember my 3070 review, I was like, in Resident Evil 2, a game from 2019 or 2018, like this game in 4K is cru- getting crushed on eight gigabytes already. I think this is going to be a real problem. I-, I don't, I don't know. In my opinion, is I thought it was obvious this was going to happen about now, no matter what. But you know that 6800 versus 3070 comparison video did blow up. Did that surprise you, or how did you feel? Or what did you? What were your thoughts when you saw that happen? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I- didn't expect it to maybe do as well as it had done. I think a lot of it come down. I guess it kind of makes sense when you look at the feedback that we got from talking about VRAM back with products like the 3070 and 6700, you know, XT 6800. You know, we copped a lot of criticism for the opinion about VRAM being potentially a selling point for AMD's GPUs back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were routinely destroyed for for bias and all sorts of things by pointing out as a feature that it you know, really wasn't giving people any real benefit at the time. People were significantly weighted towards ray tracing, DLSS on GeForce, and were sort of thinking that our talking points about VRAM were kind of ridiculous because there was, you know, there were a few edge case examples. You, you know, you brought up one. There were a few others that sort of hinted towards it being an issue. And we were sort of saying this may be an issue soon, but people were like, "No, nah, you're you're stupid and biased, and that's that's a garbage opinion." And yeah, so we copped it a bit back then. And I think the yeah the reception now sort of maybe that opinion being realised more with more examples, more real world of examples of it happening, and sort of if people were back then surprised and dismissing it as a as a real issue in 2020, then they're going to be pretty surprised in 2023 as well when it starts becoming more of an issue, you know, even if we did bring it up two or three years ago. So I guess from that perspective, yeah, maybe it didn't surprise me that a lot of people sort of jumped on this and are sort of just realizing that VRAM is a concern for these, these games. But, you know, it takes, it takes those real world examples to really prove the point. We could sit here in 2020 saying VRAM's an issue. And then three years later, there's no example. So our point looks kind of silly and, didn't turn out to be accurate at all. But you know, having those examples that, you know, quite clearly show the differences, I think was, yeah, I guess eye-opening for people. But then again, you know, some people, you know, take the conclusion too far by saying, you know, eight gigabyte GPUs are completely useless now when really we're only seeing it's some configurations. Admittedly, configurations I think people would genuinely want to use. We're not talking about ludicrous quality settings right. that are pointless we're talking about you know ultra general ultra settings ray tracing features people want to use and you know these cards are still usable with medium quality settings and so on so it's not the end of the world it's not like they you have to throw it in the trash right away but yeah i guess 
it's sort of all heating up now. And I guess it's good for the people sort of thinking about these things because you know, even if it, you know, it pushes the industry forward, right? Like you start talking about these things, people are more aware of it as an issue when buying, and that encourages these companies to do the right thing in terms of providing more to consumers. So even if it's not like NVIDIA versus AMD, you should be buying AMD because they provide more VRAM or whatever, you can forget that because it's there's multiple reasons to buy products that aren't VRAM related, but at least people are thinking about it, which means that you know, companies have to start thinking about it as well if that's something that can, you know, consumers are wanting. And really, we should just all, um, I think Steve said this in his you know, video as well and even his discussion with you, that we should be trying to push all mm. of the GPU makers to produce better products. So better pricing, better performance, more features, more VRAM across the board. So hopefully, yeah, these discussions are sort of encouraging these companies to realize that, you know, gamers aren't going to be tolerating these low-capacity VRAM GPUs anymore, especially at high prices. They want something that is going to last them for a long time. And, you know, this generation isn't really giving people that in some circumstances. Well, yeah, I mean, there were some larger channels that, and again, I, you know, I, I'll, that argued just like, you know, most games now are getting over seven gigabytes, but that's not nine. So it's fine. And it's like, yeah, well, if it's at seven now, what's, we think they're going to use less in a year. I mean, we're at the cusp of this being too much. And at least on broken silicon a couple of years ago, I had Brian Heemskirk, who's a developer. I had someone who worked at Sony Santa Monica who's a developer. And then I had someone who has a YouTube channel called NX Gamer. You know, I know him a little bit personally. I'd say he's not a develop. He's a developer adjacent. And all these developer types when Ampere came out said, don't buy a 16 core and a maxed out Gen 4 SSD and a 24 gigabyte graphics card now because the consoles have this much RAM and SSDs. Buy them when the issue pops up because stuff will be cheaper. And they all, to a man or woman, said back then, in a few years, things are going to get weird because they're going to start building to the PS5 as a baseline, the really fast SSD and 16 gigs of RAM. So it's going to be hard, but that's in a few years. And then th three years go by, and I just thought so many people, at least in the Moore's Lies Dead comments, go, what's going on? I was like, three years have passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it, man, quickly. time flies, you yeah. know? And it's just like, but here we are. And I think people forget that, like, it's not like developers have just gotten lazy or like there's a new thing that they have to use this for. There's there's some of that like there's new effects they're trying to do and that takes up RAM. But the other side of it is, at least from what I was told, is developers saw, you know, $250 eight gigabyte cards in 2016, high-end cards for a grand that had 12 gigabytes in 2016 or 2017. And they said, surely in seven years, we won't be at the same amount of VRAM, right? Like, that's never happened before. So we can probably safely assume 12 to 16 gigabytes will be mid-range by then. And this whole time, apparently, they've been doing a lot of work to try to fit it into 8 gigabytes. And the reason I think we're going from 8 gigabytes being enough to what the heck now games in 1080p and Ultra fill up 12 gigabytes is all of these tricks they've been doing, they can't do anymore. And they were kind of patching a lot of holes we weren't seeing behind the scenes. And either you're doing those or you're not. And if you want the new special effects, you can't do them. And so that, that's the thing I try to like, try to communicate to people too, is it's like, 
it's not just like the you know the textures have gotten bigger if anything they've gotten smaller to try to fit inside of these buffers it's that there's just all these things we're doing now that we couldn't do before you know and and there's the, there's just the one developer said, well, do you want us to go back to Unreal Engine 3? Because that's what we're going to have to start doing <laughs> if you want us to fit in 8 gigabyte buffers. Yeah, it's I've seen arguments as well about like, oh, well, you know, surely game developers still have to target 8 gigabytes because 80% or 90% of GPUs that people have, you look at the Steam survey, all the top GPUs are 8 gig or 6 gig or whatever, and surely with all these products that have 8 gigabyte GPUs that game developers have to target 8 gigabytes, right? Like, they they have to. They have to, right? It's like, yeah, they might, but the quality that you're getting may not be up to the standard that you're expecting. It's not so much that they're going to target 8 gigabytes as a, you know, the premium experience with ultra-quality settings and all the effects enabled. They're going to target 8 gigabytes for the game to run. And Mm -hmm. by that I mean literally that is the goal. Let's get the game running and that's it. That's it. That's all you're going to get, which is like, as you said many times, it's likely going to result in those cards running low, medium sort of quality settings because, you know, the, the VRAM is not enough. And we've seen games, you know, launch like Last of Us with terrible medium quality settings because that's what they've done. They've gone, mm-hmm. let's get this game looking nice on all the high-end GPUs and let's make it work on eight gig cards and that's that's all we can do like that we've got limited resources you know we need to target those cards because obviously people are going to be playing the game on those cards but you know there's only a limited amount of stuff we can do blah 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 blah. and over time they sort of had to after the backlash put in the work and effort to optimize it further but i think we're going to see more examples of that not happening and games just launching with these with it sort of running but not necessarily giving the, the highest end experience. And it sort of goes both ways because if I've bought an RTX 4090 with 24 gig of VRAM, I want the 24 gig of VRAM to be used if that means that the, the uh, visual quality is That's the most insane argument I've seen is like, Jedi Survivor uses 20 gigabytes. I'm like, yeah, I'd hope so. Don't you want to, yeah. to look as good as it can on your 4090? I mean, what the heck? Yeah, like I want the... If I've, if I've spent... A thousand, fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred dollars on my GPU, and I've got all this VRAM that I've paid for. I want games to be using that. I want it to load up as many textures in the highest resolution possible. I want all the VRAM used. I want all the geometry in there. I want all the the mm-hmm. ray tracing stuff in there, and that's going to cause this big scaling problem where you want the twenty four gig cards to be using super high quality textures you want these 16 gig cards to be using high quality textures and then it's going to have to scale scale down to 8 gig and yeah we can't just be sitting here and yeah you know, it's like a chicken and egg situation we can't we can't keep games as they are forever because cards have 8 gigabytes but then developers have to still develop for 8 gig cards because that's what everyone has and it's just this endless right. loop and cycle like something has to break the cycle we can't just keep accepting 8 gig as something that's perfectly acceptable all games moving forward are going to run on 8 gigabytes something is going to break it has to be either the gpu makers deliver more vram for buyers or game developers start accepting that 8 gigabytes is not going to be sufficient and the cycle has been broken this generation first by the game developers whereas i think previously the cycle was being broken mm. by the gpu makers like as you say seven years ago when we had these cheap eight gigabyte gpus eight gigabytes wasn't necessary for games at the time but then that already started to break that cycle so that the developers had access to that for the future whereas these days by being forced the other way around by developers going we 
we're at our limits here, we need to do something, it's causing so many more problems and we're seeing so many more examples of games really struggling on those products because, again, as I said, the cycle's sort of breaking in a different spot than it normally would. And it's going to take a while for that to sort of settle down as people get more VRAM cards and as this happens more and people are more aware of it. I think it's very different to those sorts of previous years where, as I said, it kind of happened in a different method or different manner. This piece of content is brought to you by Silver Knight PCs. Silver Knight PCs is a disabled veteran-owned GPU and CPU retailer, PC repair shop, and boutique PC builder that is located in North Carolina, but ships globally. They do it all. If you are in the area, drop by their location at 1324 Bragg Boulevard in Fayetteville, North Carolina to pick up reasonably priced components that come with up to a three-year warranty, and you can even trade in parts for refurbishment as well, or go to their website and use their new PC customization tool to put together the blueprints for your dream PC that they will be happy to consult with you on before building and shipping it to you. They're easy to talk to. The owner of the company even sat down and had a candid conversation with me during the pandemic shortages years ago. And so I know from firsthand experience that they do a good job. In fact, the RTX 4090 Supreme Liquid in my PC used to render this ad was sent to me by them after having its thermal paste and pads custom upgraded. So I know they ship high quality stuff and whether you're in the Fayetteville area looking to buy a graphics card in person or you want to custom order something from them online or even shop on their eBay store, click the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 6% off all orders this helps me a lot, this helps them, and I am genuinely happy to get their sponsorship as they really are a business that I can stand by as genuinely reliable. Go to silvernightpcs.com and use offer code BROKENSILICON today. Well, yeah, and you know, I, I one thing I want to throw on top of this too, that uh, I think it was actually a reader mail a few weeks ago brought up an, uh, a point that somehow I overlooked is, you know, when you get a new graphics card, you tend to sell the old one and recoup a couple hundred dollars. What's going to happen to used eight gigabyte graphics card pricing in a year? It's and again, guys, it's this isn't a fluke. It's people said it was at the beginning of this year. And I thought it was funny. They're like, well, this is just one unoptimized game. Well, now it's two unoptimized. Well, now it's now it's eight unoptimized games in a row. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wh what do you think you're going to be able to sell a eight gigabyte 4060 ti for in a year if half of games have to use low settings versus some other card that is 16 gigabytes like these 16 gigabyte cards are probably going to hold their value on the used market for a substantially longer amount of time like and that's something i think more people need to think about as well too again if you already have an eight gigabyte card it's like well you already have it so make do if you can. But with any new eight gigabyte card, I think everybody's got to think like, would I ever spend over this much if the amount of money I'm going to get back selling it is like $50 soon instead of 300. Yeah, that's going to be an issue. And I would imagine over the next couple of months, we'll see even battles where we can sort of already start to see that like 2080 Ti versus 3070, similar performance. I would expect that the 3070 is going to start dropping in value, whereas the 2080 Ti is going to hold its value a little bit better, being that 11 gig card. Um, I think that the 2080 Ti is already the uh, more expensive card on average used, based on the, the data I've been capturing uh, on for eBay a while here, now. At yeah. least in the United States, I've noticed the 3070 is almost $300 used, whereas three months ago it was like 400 which is interesting. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that, that, that's going to come to the fore as well. And I think, you know, we can't dismiss optimization as an, an issue no. with some of these modern games either, which is sort of making, it's making it a very difficult uh, discussion to have in these videos because people can cry optimization and they sort of have a point for some of these games. Like the, there's issues with VRAM in some of these tiles, but there's also other issues with optimization. Like a game like The Last of Us Part 1, yeah, it uses a lot of VRAM. That's an issue, causes a whole bunch of problems. But then there's also all these CPU problems with that game as well. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of mixing all these things together and it makes it difficult to sort of say, well, it's the fault of the GPU makers when also clearly the game has issues. But I think, you know, over time as the as these optimization things sort themselves out, we will see examples of games that are well optimized. They run well, but they just use a lot of VRAM. And I think it's at that point that all of those arguments about, okay, Hogwarts Legacy has CPU issues and all these games have issues, that'll sort of melt away and we'll still be left with VRAM as a concern. So... Well, Hogwarts is a good example because, I, like I said, I messed with it a lot for my girlfriend recently and I got it running pretty well in Rembrandt. I thought it ran great, actually, for an APU. And I'm like, so here's a game that looks like what games used to look like on Ultra just a few years ago on low settings at 60 hertz and 1080p. I'm impressed. Uh, This APU looks this good running this game. You guys are telling me this is unoptimized. I just think it needs more VRAM, guys. That's that's all I think it needs. Yeah, and, you know, there's always the discussion of like, oh, you know, this game doesn't look as good as, you know, previous game from several years ago, but it uses more VRAM. It's like, well, I think still on average we're seeing that the average visual quality of games today versus the average visual quality mm-hmm. of games in the 8-gig era, it has improved. Now, yeah, there's going to be some outliers of games that look way better and are very well optimised and use a low amount of VRAM. There's going to be some games that look really bad that use heaps of VRAM. But, you know, in general, the trend has certainly been improving. You look at, you know, I think Hogwarts Legacy, especially inside the the castle, is a great-looking game, um, especially with, like, ray tracing enabled. You know, Last of Us looks great. You know, Jedi Survivor, while not has VRAM issues, looks great. So, again, there's a lot of these sort of, like, I don't know, like, people are sort of set in their opinion. Like, you people who have bought a 3070 and have 8 gigabytes of VRAM are set in the opinion that it's the game developer's fault, that these are all badly mm-hmm. unoptimized games. And then you have like your AMD fanboys who are saying like, well, this is NVIDIA's fault. It's definitely NVIDIA's fault <laughs> for not giving enough VRAM. Whereas I think like a lot of issues, pretty much every area of the world, it's it's multifaceted. There's so many different things that go into it that it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing or another as, as causing problems. But at least with you know CPU issues and CPU optimization in games, very hard to resolve very difficult games game developers have to do heaps of stuff and often aren't very successful with it but adding more vram to gpus pretty easy you it's just, six dollars a gigabyte guys you, you like, just change the eight gig to 16 gig and wow games run so much better i think if there's that easy win that is available for for people to do take the easy win take the easy win then solve start solving all those other things yeah i've seen some pretty fascinating comments recently of people I'm not trying to be mean, but like I pointed this out to them too in the comments of like, I think we're going to need some accelerator cards. So we'll put a, an accelerator card in the second PCIe slot and then that will offload and compress VRAM. And I'm like, well, that, and I, I responded, do you think that's going to cost $20? And he goes, no. Good. Well, adding eight more gigabytes costs like $20. So maybe we just give us enough RAM and then we don't have to have this convoluted Rube 
Rube Goldberg system of compressing memory. When RAM is so, and I just think people keep forgetting this, it like to give the, you know, 40, 70, 12 gigabyte or 24 gigabytes of VRAM would have cost NVIDIA maybe an extra 50 bucks, guys. Like that's it. So what's cheaper? A $650 card that now is 24 gigabytes in the mid range or some absurd system of trying to compress things and like headaches that come with that. You know, it's not as, it's not expensive. Like none of this is. Yeah. I mean, Steve has brought up great points about why they're not going to do that because of the professional market and, you know, they want to encourage upgrades every year and those sorts of things. So again, it's very difficult, but it, it comes down to what people are buying and what people are demanding from these GPUs. It's all well and good for NVIDIA to say, we're not going to give you 16 gigabytes of VRAM because we want our professional cards to be sold at $5,000 with 16 gig of VRAM and we want to make you upgrade the next generation. It's all well and good for them to say that, but if you go, well, F off, like I'm not buying your GPU then, then that's going to you know shake up the market. It's going to force things to change. But if people are just constantly going out and buying cards anyway, then it's reinforced to them that, that that's fine, that it's acceptable for them to do. And it certainly seems with this generation more than any GPU generation that I can remember that gamers are very much going, we don't want what you're selling. And it seems like there's really no end for that. Like, game, there's really been no products that have been released where gamers are flocking out and going, we must have that. We're, we're running out to buy it. Maybe that'll happen with mid-range GPUs that are yet to launch. But it certainly seems like you know, these gamers are very much in tune with value and now VRAM as issues, and they're just saying no. Um, which is great because they'll change things. They'll change things for the future. Maybe slow, maybe slow, but at some point... I don't know. I think we're just going to get a gen that just doubles VRAM pretty soon. And, of course, soon is two to three years because it takes time to build a new generation. But I think we are going to see it. Um, You might find this very interesting for the last thing you said, though, about professional cards. Um, I I mean, I could send you some screenshots if you want it, but it's frankly, it's pretty public information that... NVIDIA is doing some absurd deals right now on professional Lovelace cards where before, I mean, half of this was due to mining, you know, booms and all that. But now there's actually kind of an AI boom going on where people are buying cards to do AI work in their spare time. Um, You know, like an A6000 was like five to six thousand dollars. And I know NVIDIA announced the new RTX 6000 is, you know, like seven grand. But if you get two of them, they will let you get them for like thirty one hundred each. And the new 20 gigabyte small form factor RTX 4000 is 700 if you get two at once. And from what I've heard, the 4080 sold bad. Graphics card sales aren't very good right now. They've been trying to use these dies in professional and they keep lowering the price. But it's to the point where like if you can get a professional 48 gigabyte card for three grand, professional 20 gigabyte card for 700, it's almost as cheap as the gaming cards now. And NVIDIA is kind of running out of runway to try to sell these cards into the professional market for that much. So I don't know. I think something does have to give here. And you can kind of see some desperation on their side where they're realizing they almost have to sell the professional cards for a better deal per gigabyte, not per teraflop, as the gaming cards, because nobody's willing to buy those anymore either. And a lot of professional people aren't because... They just want more RAM. And you're like, well, it's still a 48 gigabyte card. So why would I buy this? You know, give me 96 gigabytes or something. So I, I, I don't know. I think um, I actually think some of this VRAM stagnation is affecting everyone. And if just someone begged for more RAM, the professional cards would get double the VRAM next gen anyways. Uh, yeah, that's at least what I'm starting will. to notice. 
Yeah, they definitely would. Like if they double the, the, the consumer cards, they're going to double the, the professional cards as well. And, you know, it's, we're in different economic times to where it was previously where GPUs were flying off shelves. You know, people have less disposable income, companies struggling more than they were. So, you know, buying $5,000 professional GPUs is probably not on the, you know, the, the high up list for a lot of companies that are laying off many, many workers. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's many things I think would go into that. But, yeah, I mean, at some point people have to demand more. So, I mean, if if professional cards were flying off shelves, everyone's buying the 48-gig model, then they're not going to start producing you know, a $500 48-gig consumer GPU because that would destroy the sales of the, their cards. But, yeah, in a market where nothing is really selling and it's very difficult, then, yeah, if, it does feel a little bit like they're trying – a few different things here and there. Um, you know, we've seen even with the, the consumer launches that, at least with NVIDIA, the cards have gotten better value with each launch. They're sort of testing the, the really terrible end of value mm-hmm. with the 4080. Then they unlaunch a card that definitely would have been one of the most disastrous launches of all time if it launched as it did and renamed it, lowered the price a little bit. So, you know, they're messing around with a few things there. So, you know, maybe by the time we get these new entry-level cards, there'll be some more positive things to say. But... You know, this generation as a whole, at least in my opinion, is looking probably to be one of the worst in a, in a very long time. Um, you know, consumer sentiment is very low. Like no one wants them. And, yeah, maybe there's this like weird two-year cycle going on. Like two, two generations ago we had the 20 Series, which, again, as far as I'm aware, has sold significantly better the 20 Series than the 40 Series, you know, mm-hmm. time for time. So. Um, but that wasn't amazingly well-received. And then you get this 30 Series that, you know, without mining being an issue, had extremely great cards, like great value, lots of features. Yeah, VRAM was an issue for some of the products, but were great value. So maybe there'll be some big whiplash from this generation and we'll start seeing next-gen cards with much better value. I, I don't know, but if cards aren't selling well this year and this generation, you'd, you'd hope for some changes the following year. Um, well, yeah, the good news is that it seems like people really are pushing back this generation finally in a way that i was frankly hoping they would generations ago um and and, you know i think though you know when it comes to the professional cards and gaming cards and even consoles i do think people underestimate how interconnected everything is the amount of times i've seen in the comments and that i and i even know people in my personal life that said yeah, I'm not buying this graphics card screw it i'm getting a console like this is i'm gonna get, go get yeah. an xbox this is yep. absurd is i i promise you everybody if the 4060 or i guess you know pick your graphics card if the pricing would have held where it was a couple of years ago the playstation 6 would have been 700 like sony would have said oh you'll pay that much for a weaker graphics card 700 next gen but if we don't allow that the consoles will have to be cheaper. I think the same is true of professional cards. It's not like NVIDIA has to give you 16 gigabyte professional cards and they couldn't have been giving you 32 gigabytes the whole time. Like they could yeah. have. And I, I think like if one of these three pushes back, it's going to make all of them cheaper in the long run. And and I think, again, so like with the, and I, it's just funny because actually I think I'm seeing in the professional market, some of my sources, you know, are professional contacts. They're seeing huge pushback I'm buying RTX 6000 that NVIDIA also thought was going to fly off the shelves. But they said, well, you gave us 48 gigabytes for like two gens in a row. So why? I know it has more teraflops, but VRAM's half the equation. I really think we're seeing pushback um, in all departments right now. And it's going to help everybody if everybody pushes back. You know, it'll help professional shoppers as well. 
Um, but you know, switching. What were you going to say? Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. No, I was just going to switch gears here to uh, something I definitely do want to get to, though. So just in general, when it comes to the RX 7600 8 gigabyte, which has been pictured, we know that's what the card is. Uh, the RTX 4060 Ti and 4060, I think actually both of those have been pictured online as well. Um, it's not like what you think they will be, because I'm just going to say it. I've, I'll say it, you know, <laughs> I've been told a price for the 7600 for about a month now, but after seeing the crazy aggressive price cut NVIDIA did on the 4070 last minute, I'm not willing to double down on anything anymore because I think these companies are really playing chicken with each other and any price they tell their partners, I, I think it's more likely than not they're trying to mess with the competition with whatever they say. So I know the official price right now AMD's telling partners, at least in distributors, is like 329 But I also know other people that say the bomb cost should allow this thing to be 270 or 280 uh, and whether or not in whatever price AMD goes with, it's going to be a last minute decision based on what NVIDIA announces and vice versa. So we know without any, you know, behind the scenes, stuff, uh, I know that the 7600 is probably going to be between 270 and 330. And I guess I don't really want to get into what the 4060 and 4060 Ti are going to cost because I think it's probably going to be too much no matter what. But we'll see what they try to do. There's, there's a slim chance they may go really aggressive with them, but not what you think they're going to do, Tim. What do you think the 7600, 4060 Ti, and 4060 would need to cost for gamers to really accept them mm -hmm. and be excited, you know? Yeah. It's a difficult discussion because especially, you know, we've just been looking at products like the 4070, for example, and there's almost like two different perspectives. There's like the MSRP perspective where you look at what did the previous gen cost at launch, so what's reasonable now, and then you have to look at what the current market is actually doing so where do the cards fit in there? And with NVIDIA GPUs, you know, typically those cards have been, especially for the, the range that we're talking about, so the mid-range mainstream, has been pretty similar to launch prices for the entire lifespan of those cards. We haven't seen heaps of like flash sales or price reductions for models like, you know, 3070, 3060 Ti new at, at places like Newegg. It's been pretty similar, which makes the discussion a lot easier because then you don't have to factor in prices going down, how they're going to compare. So, you know, if we're talking 4060 Ti versus like 3060 Ti, I'd say that people would probably be wanting at least like 20 to 30% more performance at the same price. So mm -hmm. if the 3060 Ti, well, the 3060 Ti was a $400 GPU, so if they're going with the $400 price again, then you'd want to be seeing 20 to 30% more performance at the very least. Um, it would be bad if it was like 10% more performance, as an example. If it was 10% more performance, you'd want it to be cheaper. So, yeah, it all, it all depends on the performance. I'm not sure where the performance is going to lie for that card, but that's pretty much what, what I'd be wanting to see. And then 8 gigabytes of VRAM comes into the discussion as well because you then can't, at least in my opinion, you can't sell an 8 gigabyte GPU at the same price anymore. Like 4060 right. Ti was, was $400 with 8 gigabytes. I think these days that would be unacceptable for an 8 gigabyte GPU. You know, that would have to be maybe the cap on that's $300, $250, which would, for the performance within reason, that's but, my opinion. I think 300 within reason. Uh, 
Uh, and by by within reason, I mean assuming we don't have something I discussed with Steve, some bizarro card where it's as strong as a 4090 but has 8 gigabytes. Then I go, I guess that could be 500. I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's not going to be that strong. I think the 4060 Ti has 4,352 CUDA cores. Um, so what are we, if we adjust for the higher clock speeds versus Ampere, like one, two. Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at like 3070 to 3070 Ti-ish performance. So if they made it 399, I guess that's your increase there that you'd be looking for, but it has eight gigabytes. So it should probably be 350 then with that performance, in my opinion. Yeah, and even then 350 would be yeah dicey with that amount of VRAM. You know, it's... It's hard. It's hard for that sort of card because you know there's the performance and VRAM angles. So it's going to be it's going to be a bit of bit crazy to see the performance across a wide variety of games because I'm sure there'd be games where it would run just fine and games where it will, will run terribly at, at a variety of different quality settings. But you know, I think these days, you know, if a new card launches to the market and it's only like ten or fifteen percent faster than cards that people have been able to buy for like a year easily. Then it's, you're not really incent- like it's not exciting anyone. It's not incentivizing. It's not anyone. that it's not an improvement, but who is the person looking for this? Yeah, like you know? who who's been waiting for a year for a card that was ten percent faster at the same price? Like no one. Like people probably just exactly people probably Unless just you're talking about the Halo product, and they just always want the best. Yeah, of course, but you know that isn't the case at all. At, at sort of around four hundred dollars, so. Yeah, I think gamers would want 20 to 30%. And I think, you know, it becomes even more complicated with the RX 7600 because you've got the launch price of the 6600 was $330. The 6600 XT was $400. But they're not sold for that anymore and they haven't been sold for that for months. Like a 6600 has been between $200 and $240 for like, I was looking at the data earlier, like 10, 11 months now. Same with 6600 XT. That's now fallen below $300 and has been for quite some time. So, you know, again, it depends where the performance of that card falls. But, you know, I don't know. What are the rumors saying in terms of the performance of a set? Like, it has to be faster than a 6600 XT, right? Because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. The 7600? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know of at least one model tested and that they said it was over 10% better than a 6650 XT. Well, frankly, using about the same energy, but they're both six nanometers. So that's not a huge surprise. Um, and so the way I would put it is it's pretty dang safe to say the 7600 is going to perform between a 6700 and a 6700 XT. And that's actually a perfect way for me to get to my opinion is I think (laughs) <laughs> I think the galaxy brain way to go about this answer of what should these cost is let's remove comparing AMD and NVIDIA to each other because they have to worry about other cards on the market besides the new stuff coming out. Like, let's just pretend that's not the discussion and let's not even get into the MSRP talk or the bomb cost talk and much it costs to make the card. What it really comes down to is would anyone buy something if they have this alternative? It's yeah. not my opinion. I think it's a fact. If AMD launches an 8-gigabyte card with the same performance of a 10-gigabyte card, and I'm checking right now, the 6700 Sapphire Pulse new, $280. $280, 10 gigabytes. So it's not my opinion. It's a fact that a card with the same performance and less RAM should be cheaper, I think, unless they announce FSR 3 or something. And even then, I resent that kind of an argument, you know, that, well, it has new features, so pay more for the same thing. I don't really like that. So... I, I, I think it's just AMD has to price the 7600 around 
270 to 290 because that's what a 10 gigabyte card that's last gen is selling for now. And if I talk about the 4060 Ti with 6800 XT, same performance as a 4070, but it has 16 gigs of RAM, it's $500 in the US right now. So I, I don't think it's an opinion. I think NVIDIA needs a card as good as the 6800 XT with 16 gigabytes for the same price to even be under consideration. And or the same least, price doesn't sell cards, does it? Because people who right. wanted 6800 XT performance for $500 would buy a 6800 XT. Same as people who want RX 6700 10 gigabyte performance for $280 would have just bought that card because it's already on the market and has been for a long time. Which again, if it's like 10% faster than a 6650 XT at the same price, even that is not going to move cards, right? Like, again, people just would have bought a 6650 XT if that was the case. It needs to be offering a step up in value, a step up in performance or value or something to get people to who've waited to change their mind on waiting. Mm. Launching cards at the same price-to-performance ratio is not going to encourage people to buy these cards. It's just not because you just would buy, like you just talked about basically between $200 and $350, AMD's got the 6600, 6600 XT, mm-hmm. 6650, 6700, and 6700 XT all sold. There's five options right there for all sorts of price points. People who had that sort of money would just buy one of those options. So it needs to be offering more in terms of value or performance or something there. So, you know, you look at, 6600 XT being, or 6600, sorry, being priced like $230. If it's or like, 200, it's 200 yeah. for a couple new models right now. You know, if it's, what would that be like 20, 30% faster? Like 30% faster. 7600. Yeah. yeah, that that for price of like $230 would probably get me excited. But I mean, you're talking about $280 as being reasonable. Mm-hmm. So I'm well under that. <laughs> so, and, and again, I don't think VRAM's much of a, you know, too much of an issue if we're talking the $250 range because you know, it's 8 gig, you, it's, a, it's a mainstream card, medium to high quality settings is what you're targeting, not ultra. Um, they certainly couldn't price it over, th- like over 300 would be, even $300 would be hard, but over 300 would just be ludicrous for that sort mm-hmm. of uh, amount of VRAM. So yeah, VRAM not so much of an issue. It's, it seems more like price to performance. Um, who, who knows? Well, I- well, yeah, and this is where, you know, I've seen, and I've actually gotten into arguments behind the scenes with people at AMD and NVIDIA where they're like, well, you don't understand this costs this much to make, and it really does. And I said, well, that's a different discussion than don't launch it. Like, I really don't get why you're launching this yeah. to a market where no one buys it. Like, a week, like, a, three days, I think, after this, the 4070 launches, Micro Center's giving away $100 gift cards with them because they... They can't get rid of the pallets of cards that were just delivered. It's like, then why did you launch it? It's not a matter of, you know, if it's the right price, we're not going to buy it. So don't bother. Yeah, it's like, why make it like, oh, complaining about it costing too much to make. It's like, well, why did you make the, why did you make the card that's worse than your previous model that's cheaper to sell? Like, why bother? Just sell, keep selling the existing card. Like, yeah, it's just like, why waste all that time and effort making a card that can't be sold at, a better value proposition than your previous model. And it- I, I kind of have an answer, though, to that one, because I've, I've heard that, well, let, let's back up. There were rumors that Navi 33, that the 7600 is going to use, was ready to launch around Navi 31 for, for, for a very long time. 
And in fact, we've seen them launch it to laptop in January. So this thing's out there. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just a good, I, there's a good, I have a theory that AMD has had 7,600s in warehouses <laughs> for a very long time, played chicken with the market and we're like, hopefully we can get rid of RDNA 2 and then launch it. And then no one bought, they're buying them, but not enough of them. And AMD is like, look, we got to, they can't just keep sitting in warehouses at a certain point. So we've got to put them on the market. But then that means it's this delicate balancing act for them of, uh, personally, I think 270 is where they're like, we know it's not magical, but, you know, don't worry about if the six, buy the 6600 now, it's cheaper. But if it sells out, we still have a good option for you that's newer. That That's kind of what I think they're going to have to just accept. And, and you know, if, if they do that, I just, uh, I, I don't see what NVIDIA is going to do because I think I think you'd agree like, and again, whatever prices NVIDIA and AMD are saying behind the scenes, I have a very good feeling that they, they will change them last minute if they need to like they've done before. Um, I, I don't know what NVIDIA plans to do, but that 4060 has a 150 millimeter squared die. It's 1050 Ti sized. So I think anything above 300 for that as well, you know, is going to get completely rejected. But I, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. 3060s are apparently selling pretty well right now, but they have 12 gigabytes. So I think it's very optimistic to suggest that NVIDIA would pr- produce a new model that's priced below the MSRP of the previous model. I think, that's I think much not the happen. best we can hope for is like 330 and honestly, 350 is the best I think we can hope for yeah, for the 4060 think, if NVIDIA's generous. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be hoping that it's fa- just faster at the same price like that's pretty much just what we've been getting but even then the cards we've been getting at the higher end have actually been faster and more expensive than the previous model yeah under the same name so yeah it's a yeah it's difficult with the, the sort of mainstream market this the prices of amd cards have come down a lot so you know i'm sure that amd will come out and say yeah all our previous cards are you know, that was priced at 330 dollars or 400 dollars or whatever and it's you know it's, it's way different it's like yeah but you know, you, you discounted that pretty much straight after launch as soon as you possibly could and have been selling it for a much lower price for ages. So, you know, that argument doesn't isn't really going to fly as well. But I agree, it's a tricky market to launch into when there's still a lot of supply and stock of old models because they can't just burn all the old supply. Like, I remember previous launches when things were super in demand, you know, you see this flash sale for, briefly and all the cards would disappear and then the new card launches and it sells out instantly it seems like there's just way too much supply to even consider ridiculous flash sales because they would just be losing so much money because they've made so right. many of these cards. It's kind of this counter, it's somewhat counterintuitive situation where if you only have 10% cards to get rid of, you might as well discount them a lot because they'll be gone like this. But if you actually have 80% cards to get rid of, well, yeah. you can't do that. We can't sell 80% of them for this much less than we wanted to. That would bankrupt us, you know? Um, I will say, though, like AMD's earnings showed their gaming revenue and margins are fine. So it seems yeah. to me like these discount RDNA 2 cards, shortages ended, shipping got cheaper, RAM got cheaper. They dropped the price and they're making the same margins they have been the whole time. So I don't think AMD needs to worry. I think if they want to price them that low, they can. Um, additionally, I was told by a distribu- uh, a retailer that the, you know, AIBs sell cards to retailers below MSRP, and then they sell them for twenty to fifty dollars above what they got them for. I am told that he is paying seven fifty right now for seventy nine hundred XTs, or like this 
person that like works at one of the major online retailers is. So when you see an XFX or Sapphire model on Newegg, that's or Amazon, really both because they price match each other, going for seven ninety, this person's paying like in charge of overseeing seven fifty for them at that online retailer. So don't kid yourselves; they're selling them to them for seven fifty. They can't afford to sell that for below 800 it's not like they're all taking losses right now so i i still feel like there's still a bit of these crocodile tears not from everyone because like you'll have some people who bought up too many of a card and now they're trying to get rid of them but like when it comes to like amd and nvidia specifically i do think there's some crocodile tears going on there about like we can't afford to make it cheaper yeah of course i mean these are billion dollar companies so it's hard to feel any sort of sympathy for them whatsoever um especially when they're sort of screwing over customers with the, the pricing of some of these cards. So, yeah, I, yeah, launching into a difficult market is kind of difficult from the perspective of keeping their margins, isn't it? We're not really talking mm-hmm. about, yeah, they could sell these cards for a lot cheaper. They, they definitely could. And, you know, we've seen, yeah, even cards like the bloody 3050, which has never been seen <clears> at its like just never been a $250 GPU in pretty much its entire, like I'm sure NVIDIA would say, well, technically we sold the 3050 in a small oh, amount for $250 at launch, but since then it's been nowhere near that. So yeah, certainly a lot of price things that can, that can happen there. And I agree with Steve when he said things like, you know, these companies are trying to recondition the market to, you know, accept different prices to accept that things are more expensive now and play into the whole inflation angle and things like that. Like, oh, it costs more to make now, so we have to price it higher. And, you know, oh, you know, things just cost more now. And we want you to accept that the mid-range doesn't start at, you know, $100 anymore. It starts at $300 now. And, yeah, they're, they're trying. They're certainly trying. I think consumers are saying, we're calling your BS on that one and that none of your explanations are, are accurate at all. So, It'll be interesting to see how long that 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 gap between what the GPU makers are doing and what consumers are accepting, how long that will will last for. Who's going to give in first? Will it be the the gamers just accepting we now need to spend three hundred dollars on an entry level GPU, or will it be the GPU makers saying, "Well, no one's buying our cards. We have to lower the price." Um, I'm really not sure which way it's going to go on that one. I think it's a it's a toss up. Well, if there was one company, we know which way it would go, but there's competition. So, yeah. if AMD does have all of these Navi 33 cards, they literally need to get rid of sooner rather than later or they're going to get undercut and lose even more money, then they are incentivized because of competition to be more aggressive than Nvidia, which will enforce Nvidia to change, you know, to change their mind as well. And I I I actually, you know, and this is the funny thing I've said uh to some of my contacts where like you know, deciding like, what do you, what do you think is the one that is going to sell? Well, we're going to stock a bunch of stuff. What do you think you should go for? And it's like, I would just make sure you don't overpay for the initial shipment because from what I've heard about the cost to make a 7,600, it really comes down to does AMD want a good review or not? If they continue to have this weird idea where they're like, we're going to launch the 7,900 XT for 900 only to make it a $750 card six months after it comes out. Okay, or you could have just made it 800 and have good reviews and it would have sold okay the whole time. I think whether AMD wants it or not, it's going to be a 250 to $270 card in two months, guys. I think it will be because I don't think the market's going to pay more than that, which will force retailers to pay less, which will force AMD to offer better prices to distributors. So it just at this point for me with AMD, NVIDIA, it's a little more complicated. But with AMD, I just go, I think we're just going to find out in a few days if AMD 
wants good reviews or not. <laughs> like, and, and, yeah. you know, will they continue to decide to have these weird decisions? Um, Chris Rich writes in and he says, in your opinion, what would make for the better mid range GPU for the average gamer? A 12 gigabyte model with great ray tracing performance or a 16 gigabyte model with average ray tracing performance, other things being equal. And let's do the same for high end. Would it be better for a gamer to have a 16 gigabyte card with excellent RT or a 24 gigabyte model with average RT? And again, all things power consumption, rasterization on the side are equal. He says, personally, I go for more VRAM, but I'm curious what you think. And he wants to be clear. This is not an AMD versus NVIDIA argument for him. He's just in a vacuum, same raster, power consumption and price. Would you rather have, you know, 16 and 12 or 12 with better ray tracing? Yeah, I mean, I think the high-end discussion is pretty easy. I would probably take the 16 gig model with the better ray tracing performance because the overall performance of the card is more likely to be suited to ray tracing. And 16 gigabytes is probably going to be sufficient for the foreseeable lifespan of that card. So you'd probably take the the, rate, the ray tracing performance at the high end. But I think when you're sort of talking about, you know, your mid-range GPUs, 12 versus 16, ray tracing versus average ray tracing, you know, the, the performance of the card may not be sufficient for great levels of ray tracing just in general being a mid-range GPU. I mean, even today you look at sort of the, the best examples of ray tracing in games and things like you know cyberpunk overdrive mode the sort of the 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 ray tracing that justifies ray tracing being this future of of gaming requires a significant amount of of performance and it's unlikely i think that you'd get that in a you know a mid-range gpu i just Mm -hmm. think that especially with when games start really pushing ray tracing more you think about you know a three to four year lifespan of a gpu it's only going to get harder and harder for that card to run ray tracing at an acceptable level of frame rate and performance. So, yeah, if I'm looking at a 4090 sort of being, well, to, you know, it can, can sort of run an overdrive mode. It can run the highest ray tracing settings in games that look good with ray tracing. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just don't see that being the case for a mid-range GPU. I think the card's probably not going to age very well for ray tracing performance, and you'd probably take the extra VRAM instead because, you know, 12 gigabytes, I still expect that to be good enough for a lot of games in the short term. And But, yeah, I mean, in four years, will a mid-range GPU of today be sufficient to run, like, the, the newest, latest and greatest ray tracing games that come out in four years' time? I mean, like, the 2060s and 2070, those sort of cards are basically mm-hmm. useless for ray tracing today, and that's the sort of time frame we're talking about. So, yeah, I would take, I'd take the extra VRAM uh, for that sort of category card, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing I've I've seen a a decent amount of people also say, which startles me. They'll go, oh, my 3070 is running out of RAM. I better go get this 12 gigabyte 4070. And I go, guys, so three years later, four gigabytes more. It's not 16. We already have games at like high settings maxing out 12 gigabytes and 1440p now. This is the same situation as the 3070. Maybe that's good enough for you. You just upgrade every two years and sell your old one. But maybe I feel like you could maybe try to get ahead of it a little bit and get something with 16 gigabytes of RAM if RAM is the reason you're upgrading. And I, I yeah, I, I really think in a year we're going to sit here and eight gigabytes is going to be like four gigabytes a few years ago. 12 gigabytes is going to be like eight gigabytes. And 16 gigabytes is going to be like 12. More than enough. But you can find a game that maxes it out, and 24 will be more than enough. 
And to be honest, it also wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing an insanity mode in a couple games in a year that use 32 gigs of RAM. Although, frankly, you'd need one 32 gigabyte consumer card probably before a developer would consider that. Because I, I don't know what they're testing that setting on if they don't have that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, ray tracing, it's been around for a while. So I think it's still yet to prove itself in a lot of circumstances in terms of, you know, visual uplift, especially compared to texture quality. It's always that battle of, you know, if medium quality textures start looking as bad as they look in things like The Last of Us, then that has as much more significant impact going from medium textures to ultra textures in that game than, you know, a game, most games that we see today going from ray tracing off to on. Um, and I certainly expect that to still be an issue for mid-range GPUs within the next few years where the texture settings will probably have more of an impact visually than the ray tracing settings in some games. Now, there's going to be there's definitely going to be games where ray tracing will look great, you want to turn it on, mm-hmm. have this big impact. But even today, there are many sort of flagship high-end AAA titles coming out where ray tracing isn't a must-have. Um, and there are some where it is a must-have, so it, it, it does depend. Um, but yeah, I just... Uh, yeah, mid mid range GPU for ray tracing. It's just not. We're just not there yet with the level of performance required for ray tracing. Is still very much high end, you know, GPUs. And the reason why the ray tracing effects don't look great in a lot of games is simply because if they made them look great, they wouldn't right. run on anything. So it's kind of that 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 again, sort of catch twenty two situation. It, they have to. We have to be looking if still a few generations further into the future where mid range ray tracing makes sense. So yeah, I'd be sticking to things like. Yeah, who knows? Maybe Unreal Engine Five games with you know new features like Nanite and so on will require more VRAM. I'm not sure. I'm not a developer, so I, I wouldn't know. But certainly, typically, when you increase texture quality and geometry quality, it requires more VRAM, and those are the sorts of games that I'd be wanting to play on the sort of high geometry level settings, high texture quality settings on mm-hmm. my mid range GPU. It's just you know textures are usually like a free performance setting if you have enough VRAM. I know. So. You may as well target that if ray tracing is not that feasible at that performance tier. Well, yeah, and you know, I think it's funny. We this actually a lot of this push was by Nvidia. It's like we can use graphics cards for so more than just standard effects. We can use them for compute and AI and all of this. And developers were like, "Oh, okay, Nvidia will do that." All of that uses VRAM, though, so I don't know what your plan was long-term by limiting us to that. Yeah. And so all of these extra features in upcoming games too. And I, it's not just textures. All of them use more VRAM. And, and that's really what the issue is coming from, I think. Um, well, all right. So if I have you for a little bit longer, I cost out a lot of the stuff because we've been going so long with only about half the script so far. But I did, if we have time for it, want to touch on mobility just a little bit here. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll combine two things together here. Um, I know you used to do a lot of laptop reviews and you stopped doing that. So I'm curious why you stopped doing that. But then also, you know, Gabe Newell writes in and he asks, what do you make of AMD and Intel's mobile products this year? I find it hard to get excited about a lot of these products on the AMD side because you usually have issues with availability. But then on the other side, there tend to be bundled with NVIDIA graphics cards that are really overpriced this year. So how do you think this year is looking for mobility and why did you stop reviewing laptops? Yeah, why did I stop reviewing laptops is probably a... (laughs) don't know how long it's going to take to answer that question. There's a lot of reasons. Um, I guess the big one for me is that, you know, a lot of the coverage that we did on laptops was designed around gaming. Like that's sort of our focus with a lot of desktop coverage as well. Sort of a gaming channel. So covering gaming laptops is always about 
making sure that we're covering all the sorts of ways that someone may play PC games. But as over time, as we've sort of seen more and more laptops launch, it becomes very hard to justify a gaming laptop as a product category. I Mm. think in a lot of circumstances, it makes more sense for people interested in a gaming laptop to just buy a desktop. If you look at a lot of the gaming laptops that are released today, like high-end stuff, mid-range stuff, entry-level stuff, you look at the majority of the models being made, they're these two and a half to three kilo systems. They've got this massive power brick that, you know, the performance on battery is horrible. Battery life is horrible. They require being plugged into the wall to get any sort of respectable level of performance. When you look at, you know, the majority of the gaming laptop market being that sort of product, you sort of think, well, who buys that? Who Who's buying a, this big, chunky, hard-to-carry-around gaming laptop? Like, there's going to be people that will use it sort of as a desktop replacement, like it's, it's on their desk, it's plugged into the wall most of the time for gaming, maybe it's hooked up to an external display or external peripherals, but it mostly sits in the one place and maybe gets taken around once every couple of months. Now, that buyer should definitely buy a desktop because a desktop will be either much more powerful at the same sort of price or it'll be much cheaper for the same level of performance and you're really not harnessing the portability of the laptop, so why bother? Then there's the people who take around their laptop every day, like you're commuting to work or whatever and you're bringing around a laptop. Now, who wants to carry around a a two-and-a-half-kilo laptop with a 600-gram giant power brick that is useless on battery? Like that product makes no sense for a a person that needs portability. It just completely defeats its own purpose. So you're really left with people, and there's been some people that have commented where I've mentioned this opinion who are like, you know, oh, I'm an engineer and I... Mm -hmm. I go off, I need to do on-site work in some location. I'm in a hotel for two weeks. So I'll bring my gaming laptop to play some games in the hotel. Then I take it, take it back home. And that's the sort of use case for a gaming laptop these days, which I think is pretty niche. Like uh, not a lot of people have that sensible use case. So to me, well, there's, I have a couple sources too, who are like, I won't say what they do, obviously, to protect them, but like they do stuff where they have to have powerful laptops in the field for on-site quick analysis of data and projections but whether we're talking about that for work or we're talking about this engineer who tend to get paid very well in the field these are people with tons of money this isn't really the same type of analysis it's kind of just box checking and then this is it you know it's not what's the better choice yeah and someone who has a lot of money can probably afford to have a laptop and a desktop like a desktop at home plus their field work laptop but yeah i sort of uh, I test all these products and I get all the benchmark data in and then I just come to the conclusion. It's like it's interesting if you're buying a gaming laptop what these new parts can do. But ultimately, I can't really recommend these products to anyone. Like I just mm. I sit there, I'm testing these things. I'm like, I don't personally use a gaming laptop. Like I never use one. So it kind of feels a bit weird testing and recommending products I don't personally use or would recommend to anyone. And then, you know, this specific generation, things have just gotten even worse. Like the power consumption of all these parts, you know, the yeah. TDPs have, have gone higher and not just the TDPs, but like the actual power consumption of like, they're running laptop CPUs that are like 80, 90, 100 watts. You can't yeah. run a laptop CPU at 100 watts on battery. The, the battery will last for 30 minutes. It's like, it's mm-hmm. completely ridiculous. And then on top of that, the pricing and naming is just like, it's horrendous, the pricing of these these systems. Like, 4090, not 4090, but uh. 4090 laptop stuff being sold for like $4,000, $5,000. You're 
you spec out a desktop PC and it would just absolutely mop the floor with that laptop. Like just destroy For half the price maybe, Destroy yeah. it. Like if you're spending $5,000 on a gaming desktop, you're getting the best of everything. Like you're getting legit, like an actual 4090, you're getting heaps of memory, flagship CPU. It's like 50, 50 plus percent faster for the same price. It just destroys it. So I look at all those products and I just go, these products make no sense. They're stupid. They're stupid products. So I don't really have the incentive to review them anymore. And the thing that I think that really reinforced this was testing the MacBooks because the MacBooks do everything that a laptop should do. They have great performance on battery. They have great battery life. The performance when plugged in is also excellent, but it's not really that different to running on battery. The hardware is designed to be portable. It doesn't require you carrying around like a literal brick giant thing to power it. Has great display runs really well. Now, I personally wouldn't use one because I'm not a fan of macOS, but the Mm -hmm. hardware, it's like Apple's gone, hey, we actually know what people want from a laptop. It's portable. It runs well on battery and it has good performance on battery. So I'm just baffled by the lack of Windows options that do that. Like there's a few options. There's a few things here and there, but this focus from Intel and now AMD is getting in on as well with these HX series parts, which just aren't designed. Like it's basically a desktop chip being put in a laptop. Mm -hmm. You know, the design philosophy there is all wrong for a laptop. It should be highly efficient. It should run super well on battery. And I think, you know, there's an opportunity for that product to exist. I think AMD is probably in a good position where, you know, they can produce an APU that's really efficient, got great CPU performance and has a good iGPU that can play your games. And then when you're plugged in, it activates, you know, a discrete Radeon GPU that's also, you know, reasonably power efficient and so on. I think that that product has the possibility of existing but it's just that all the focus is on benchmark. Like, let's win benchmarks. Let's deliver the best performance when that performance is totally unrealistic. Benchmarks when you're plugged in and it's a desktop, anyways. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's nice that you can run games consuming 150 to 200 watts of power on a laptop. I, I mean, it has jet engine fan noise, so it's not the best experience. But you know, it's nice that it can do that. But then you unplug it and it's useless, and it's hard to carry around. I, I think. I just think the disconnect there is getting larger. It's going the wrong way. The focus should be more on the 35, 25, what, 15 watt models delivering excellent efficiency in super thin systems that do have some gaming capabilities because we've seen the popularity of Steam Deck for gaming, the ROG Allies just being released as well as that sort of portable. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not a fast system. Like you're not playing no. you know, 1440p ultra settings, you're playing 720p low settings, but people are fine with that. And I think... You know, there's the, there is room for a like a 13 inch ultra portable that runs you know the the SOC at like 20 25 watts. It has some gaming capabilities that are better than a Steam Deck. It's maybe it runs longer on battery or whatever. You know, there's the capability for that product to exist, but it's just not the way any of these OEMs are designing laptops, and that makes it really hard for me to sort of get excited about the laptop ecosystem because I'm excited about efficiency, but no one seems to be interested in selling that. So mm-hmm. that's my super long reason. Oh, the se- there's a second part to this as well, and that is the way we used to test was, you know, we tried to power normalize things, give a general outlook on, right. you know, what's the 13980HX delivering from a performance standpoint. But then we got people like Jared and Jared's Tech testing a wide variety of laptops, and you realize that actually the generalized testing doesn't really apply very well. The performance range across many laptops using even the same components is very significant, like... 
the lowest, you know, the lowest TDP versus highest TDP on the CPU can be different. On the GPU side, it can be very different. So, you know, that generalized testing is nice from a for science perspective, but for actually recommending products, you kind of need to know how their specific laptop is performing. That requires too much work and too much testing. It's like you're doing four reviews, every laptop review, right? And then like, you have to like, Make the video twice as long because you want to make sure people watching the video to know how good's a 3070 can know that. But then how good's a 3070 in this laptop? That's a different answer. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. It requires you testing or basically all the laptop models, and that's a full-time job. Like Jared, basically that's all he does. And we just don't have the resources to do that. And I don't really want to do it either, as for all the reasons I've mentioned previously. So yeah, that's really why I guess, you know, we haven't done many mobility or laptop reviews. And I think Moving forward, a lot of our coverage will be more on the desktop side of things. You know, my time's better used testing displays, working on our monitor stuff, and also, you know, the FSR versus DLSS videos. That video wouldn't have been possible with, with if I had to be testing mm-hmm. all these laptop components at the same time. So, yeah, that's just that sort of decision. But I'm keen to hear, like, do you agree with any of my thoughts there when I'm sort of saying these these gaming laptops that people keep talking about are actually something that most people shouldn't buy? Like, it's kind of a harsh point, I guess, but... Well, you know, I think you only do content that you're passionate about because, you know, I remember making this conclusion a few years ago and my channel really started popping off and I was like, well, why did this video do well and this one didn't? There's some stuff like, you know, this subject was bigger, this leak was more impactful, this, you know, thing here resonated better. But honestly, the one thing I can say makes a video always perform better is if you were passionate during it and you can't manufacture passion. Yeah. You can try to, and all you get is the people that smile too much and yell a lot like that. that that's not <laughs> yeah. real passion. And people can tell if you're passionate and you can't, hot, you can't fake it. So if you're not passionate about the laptop market and it would make sense why you're not, I basically agree with everything you said, um, then why do it? Why, why make these videos you don't want to make? You know, there's, I used to think I'd be doing more reviews, but I'm more interested in like the behind the scenes analysis. Well, so then I'm going to do reviews to make sure, frankly, I'm not full of shit. Cause there's some people who just talk about stuff and they never actually try out the product. And at a certain point you get into these bizarro opinions that actually only make sense if you've never tried it. So that's why I make myself do reviews every now and then. And and, and because I do them so rarely, I enjoy them. <laughs> it's like a change of pace. But I, I guess I'm wondering though, would you have a would you consider a change of pace if the products you're describing start coming out? Because I I, I don't know if you've seen the, my content from the past month, but it's coming. You know, the the I just leaked a thing. A lot of OEMs were saying, and then as usually happens, like after I put out a leak, more people get back to me and say that's definitely true. Sorry, I didn't get back to you a week ago. Um, a lot of OEMs are planning to drop dedicated graphics in basically everything that isn't a 4070 and higher in performance. And it's because Meteor Lake supposedly has like 1650 Ti performance. And no, that's not as good as a 4060, let alone a 4050, which is really like 4050 is like 2060 performance, kind of, uh, depending on the TDP, of course. It's like half the performance of that, but they're or like a little better than half the performance of that. But then they go, right, but it cuts the battery life in half to put any dedicated card in there that has to be able to be turned on or off. And so if we can have a 17-hour battery life with 1650 Ti performance, and also now remember we don't have to buy a Lovelace card and cool it and just handle those drivers, it's also cheaper. We'd rather market a card or a laptop 
that has better battery life than a MacBook, same graphics performance, then market something that has better performance and half the battery life if it's cheaper. Because we're turning the efficiency and performance knob, but on one end, it's also cheaper to make and easier. And so I think that we're... And you know, also these, these laptop companies redesign their chassis every like three to four years. So if you know AMD and Intel are going in this GPU-less direction, and also Aerolake, I believe, is socket and base die compatible with Meteor Lake, well, then you're going... Well, so everything's going to fit into the socket. Everything's not going to need a GPU. Let's redesign our laptops this fall. And I think we're going to see some Meteor Lake laptops at the end of this year that are really only like 10 to 20% better than Phoenix, but maybe have 50% better battery life. And I'm wondering if you'd want to review that, though, if you'd find that interesting. Yeah, I mean, possibly. It really depends on, you know, again, probably we'd be taking a gaming focus. I'm sure those products would be very good for productivity tasks as well. So I think, yeah, it really depends on the product. It's sort of like a, a wait and see on that because we're seeing the, the handheld gaming market sort of emerge more in terms of like when people are buying a portable device for gaming, it seems like there is this demand for those sort of Steam Deck, ROG Ally, you know, GPD and A&EO products. So that's sort of an interesting thing to keep an eye on for sure, like the the very much handheld dedicated gaming product. So I'd be interested to see like when we start getting those sorts of products that you've been describing, how those slot into them. Like are people going to be buying those for like are people going to be buying those for gaming? Like is someone going, yeah, this is this is my portable gaming system and I'm interested in benchmarks and performance of that for gaming, or are people going to be still preferencing like an ROG Ally or Steam Deck type product? So I guess, yeah, for us, it's sort of like a, a waiting, a waiting game on that one. Let's see where, where people go and what people are actually interested in for portable gaming. And I think, yeah, gaming laptops, yeah, it hasn't really sold me, but it seems like, yeah, there's this lot of momentum that people still do want a portable gaming device that runs really well on battery and delivers acceptable performance. So yeah, I'm keen to see whether that will end up being, you know, the market gravitates more to the, the Steam Deck. So whether it gravitates back to sort of the laptop format, but with, actually acceptable levels of performance on battery and actually good battery life because it seems like people are okay with like two hours of battery life out of a steam deck but are like not okay with one hour or half an hour out of a game laptop which i think is perfectly understandable like two hours is sort of a reasonable amount um not great but reasonable one hours is obviously pretty much useless so yeah i'm keen, keen to see that because as we sort of talked about, it should theoretically be possible to have that sort of large APU design that's very efficient. It can cut things down and run really well on battery and deliver good levels of or acceptable levels of performance for gaming. It should be possible. It's just a matter of changing the design focus away from let's win all the benchmarks to let's win battery life and let's actually compete with the MacBook in a serious way. Um, because yeah, like a MacBook, like a MacBook Pro would genuinely be a great gaming device if it actually ran games. Like if it wasn't macOS, if it ran a, an operating system people want to use, then that would be a great product. So hopefully, Windows OEMs can create something like that from these new upcoming chips. Well, so you know, and I don't know if you, I it didn't get as many views as some other. It got a lot of views, but not as many views as like you know, just like a a leak about a 4070 or something. But I did this leak on Strix Halo. And I can say when I got that information, I don't know if you've seen that leak from me, but like I've never, I haven't been as excited to talk about a product because I actually want the product as I have with that one where, I mean, AMD has a 16 core 
40 compute unit, RDNA 3 plus product coming out second half of next year, it looks like, uh, by the second half of next year, hopefully it comes out sooner, obviously, that is plans to use up to 120 watts. And it literally says on their documents, here's our Apple M series competitor. And they have like comparisons um, and some 3D Mark benchmarks that show they think this will match a 4070 laptop plus a you know high power CPU while consuming 90 to 120 watts total, meaning the top end model, you can use it full performance on battery if you want to. Yeah, it might only last an hour, but it's full performance. It's not like these gaming laptops we have now where it's a third the performance and an hour of battery life. And the models that are like 32 compute units cut down, maybe eight cores, those could conceivably game on battery on a laptop for like three hours. So I wonder if that excites you, though, like that type of thing coming out, because AMD's going for it. It sounds like finally the type of thing you're describing. And and by the way, even Strix point, like the standard APU is supposed to be 1660 plus 12 cores and five performance in 45 watts. That's a game changer there as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it depends. It depends. Like the performance side of things is obviously nice, and that's always been sort of the focus of these companies. But it really depends on like how well it can scale. Like that's a, it sounds like a big chip, so you'd want AMD to be really focusing on, you know, can we like power gate this really well so that in a gaming configuration let's say it only requires a couple of CPU cores and half the GPU that we can really just turn a lot of that stuff like fully off to actually get good mm-hmm. performance because you know, it sounds impressive, but you wouldn't want to be powering this 40 compute unit, 16 core CPU uh, when it's not necessary because that's not going to be great for battery life and efficiency. So, you know, if AMD can really nail down things like, you know, the MacBook is particularly impressive for things like single thread performance using a very low wattage, like can they deliver these, you know, that that kind of efficiency? Can they cut idle power to ludicrously low levels, which is going to really help with battery life on those products, especially for light, you know, tasks and use cases. And, you know, for gaming, can they get something like three to four hours of battery life out of it by power gating certain parts of it and running it in this sort of good configuration? That's That's what I'd be interested to see because, Again, like it sounds nice, but the focus from these companies has typically been let's make this the highest performing part that we can. And AMD has dabbled a bit in efficiency. That certainly has been a goal for some of their parts, but you know they're still quite a way behind the sort of power gating and downclocking and efficiency that the the M2 and M1 can do. So yeah, if they if they can achieve something like that with that level of performance, I'd be very impressed. But certainly, it would require a lot of work compared to where they're at at the moment. Well, so I just opened up one of the slide decks on the side here, and because there's one page that really is interesting to me in terms of power, it kind of seems like between 80 to 120 watts, they want this thing that beats a 4070 laptop edition, of course, I mean, which is really 4060 Ti, and has 12 to 16 cores of Zen 5 and full cores. These are, you know, these will be better than the desktop chips we have now. And they want that to be 80 to 120 watts. And the idea with that would just be, look, you're still going to want to plug it in if you're gaming. But it's gaming like a 200-watt laptop. So there's less heat. The laptop's half as big. You know, it's still more portable. But then, it like I, there's one note here that's interesting where they're like, 
below 35 watts, limited to eight cores. And it doesn't say what they're limited to for the compute units, but it kind of seems like to me they want to offer almost desktop class replacement in a 13 inch, but you still need to plug it into game. But they're going to have these models that are like just eight cores of Zen 5, so no, no slouch, and maybe 40, 60 performance. But the thing could last hours on battery life. But that's going to be a different product. Uh, the fully enabled products meant to kind of be premium thin and light of what you can get now, whereas the mid-range of it is meant to... Look, they've disabled part of the chip. It uses 30 watts, so it can last three hours gaming. You know, th that kind yeah. of seems to be the plan. Yeah, I hope so. But again, you, know, you talk about like this will do what a 200-watt uh, laptop can do, but that's a 200-watt laptop now. If the product isn't coming out until the second half of next year, then potentially we've got a whole different class of they be desktops and laptops to, to talk about. So maybe, to, you know, that, that's always the, the issue with these sort of APU-type designs. Now, that would be obviously a mm -hmm. very large APU, but it's always... People always ask us questions like, do you ever think, you know, iGPU gaming will be possible? And it's like, yes, but as iGPUs get faster, so do all the other stuff. Like a new generation comes out with a faster iGPU, mm -hmm. that means that basically everything improves with it. So by making a 40 computer thing, it should catch up a little bit, but it depends on like, you know, if a new generation of flagship GPUs comes out, then it's going to change that discussion a bit. Depends on the games as well at the time. So hopefully it does everything that you're saying. Hopefully. Uh, but well, hopefully, yeah, it, it achieves what... And, you know, this is the interesting thing is the, the older slide decks for this product, they wanted to launch it like quarter two next year. And then you'd go, okay, so that's half a year to a year before Blackwell comes out. That's going to make a splash. But then you see later information go, oh, it's slipping to quarter three. Oh, we're not sure. I, I think timing matters because if this launches at the same time as, you know, I don't know, right, Lunar Lake and Blackwell, then it's going to feel less special. It, re it really will matter heavily if they can get this out on time. Yeah, and that's always the case with future hardware. Like, it sounds great now. Like, if that product launched right now, it would be like a killer product, right? But obviously with development cycles and things. But yeah, like, I'm certainly interested in seeing what something like can do, like that can do. Um you know, it's more down the line of what AMD should be doing because they've got a big CPU and a big GPU division. They really should be trying to harness that synergy as much as they possibly can in products, and they just haven't really been doing too much of that. But but as I said, it would require, you know, their, their chips are efficient. They're certainly, you know, impressive in that area, but they're not, they're not at like Apple Silicon level of single-thread power consumption or idle power just yet. I think they could do it, but it still requires work. So, again, I think I, I'm I'm keen to see what they can do. I'm very very keen because that makes so much more sense than these hundred watt HX series. De like, let's just take the desktop part and put it in a laptop, and you see that. Yeah. You know, I think Jared's tech had some testing where the AMD HX series parts actually aren't that very impressive on battery, whereas previously a lot of their other CPUs have been impressive on battery. So it's again just defeats the purpose. So I'd like to see less of that stuff. Less of let's just bring the desktop stuff into laptops and more of the custom designed, let's really think about what a laptop customer wants and let's deliver that sort of thing because that sort of thing is not a desktop part. It's not bringing the desktop part over. It's a specifically designed part that is you know, meant for laptops.
Well, what are you talking about? NVIDIA offers an RTX 4090 on laptop that only uses 80 watts. Come on. Isn't it's, that what you're crazy. describing? It's crazy. It's just as fast as my desktop 4090, would you believe? Especially at 80 watts, right? Yeah, because that's how physics works, of course. When you have a 400-watt GPU and you take it to 80 watts, you actually lose no performance. It's it's really incredible. Well, you you... Well, it's still a 4090, so it's 4090 class performance that has a 50% range. I mean, it's not the same GPU or the same VRAM capacity or the same memory bus or the same power consumption or performance, but it's still a 4090. Joke's on you. It's called a 4090 still, though. Well, that's, I mean, you know, that this is why NVIDIA is such an innovative company. (laughs) All right. Um, I think I got through all of the discussion points I wanted to get through. We went quite a while, but sometimes we often do. Was there anything else you wanted to discuss in this episode before I let you go? No, I think you really hit on a lot of the topics that I've sort of been immersing myself in at the moment, sort of the the monitors, the FSR and DLSS stuff, and yeah, the sort of the laptop side of things, which I'm sort of cooling down on a little bit now, not focusing as much, trying to spend my time doing a few other things, keeping a little close eye on it. So sort of, yeah, I've been reading a few like ROG ally reviews and things like that, but apart from that, not doing too much there. But yeah, yeah, it's always good to chat about those sorts of things. It's, it's always fun. All right. Well, so before I let you go, though, please, one more time, plug as many things related to you or really I don't care anything else you want to promote, you know, so people can know where to find you. Yeah, so maybe first up, just check out Monitors Unboxed. That's if you've been a fan of Hardware Unboxed for a while and you want to get most of our monitor content, then we've got our new separate channel where it's really dedicated to all the monitor coverage, reviews, recommendations, and other cool things on there. So yeah, if that's something that you're after, then yeah, Monitors Unboxed. But apart from that as well, I still do make content for Hardware Unboxed covering all the PC hardware side of things as well. So yeah, those are the two places to find me at the moment. Okay, and there will, of course, be links in the description for that. In addition to all of the Moore's Laws Dead stuff, please remember to subscribe to the Moore's Laws Dead YouTube channel. We'll subscribe to the Hardware Unboxed and Monitors Unboxed YouTube channel as well. And you can find us on Patreon. Uh, you get to ask us questions, get early ad-free access to Broken Silicon. There's a Discord. All of that's there, those that have the extra money every month. And besides that, thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, have a good week. Yeah, thanks, everyone. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Kerry Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawisdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Kerry Nosugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly 
possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it, the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, AV, Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Mahal Wakwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Shredbird, Brian Riggleman, Dr. Forbin, Sam Miller, Deke, Josh Law, The Mechanical Philosopher, Joe Foot, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Christopher Crosson, Joshua L. Herrera, Valko Malev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spantum G. Spantum, Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Jips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Alex Vega, Gregory S. Hacker, Dominic Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Cameron, VentiCZ, HardForeRoom.com, Original Ross, Zlicky, Lance Bassler, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, GC Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, David Sebastian, Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jaskowiak, Travis Gooden, Holden Mobley, Nanian, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Semi Malas, Greg, AWS Dan, Patrick Crow, and Will Chief, Brett Summers, Milton, Stephen Dick, Tommy, John, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, McDaffy, AC, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Joseph A. Magical, Matthew Lazier, Stefan Koladic, Henry Zhang, Jensen N., Keith Moore, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337, Antix, Joseph Kelly, Earth Taurus, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jim Ferrier, RB Racer, Keith Moore, Michael Cozy, Ben DNA Tech, Toka, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginald Ari, Slushbot, Tika Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Nithru Zink, Mean Dean, Richard Yao, Andre Jacques, Gaiman, Since Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Winstar, William Welpy, James I. Raider, Corey Leonard, Nalima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, John Swin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, William Leaked, Corey Capel, Evan Dingle, C2, John Iverson, Michael, Aaron, The Eternal Dreamers, Jameson Angima, Him Sagung, Derek Lambing, James Mosher, Kiko Sato, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music.